You are tuned in to the PBE podcast where we're taking new information, applying it to new real world applications to make discoveries. We got to stop and take a minute and thank our sponsors, BRT Energy Advisors, Better Reservoir Technologies, Results Without the BS. We've had Alan on our show and I can tell you from experience, he definitely has seen seismic from around the world, including of course, right here in the Permian Basin. If you are in the EMP business and you want to use seismic data to increase the value of your asset, or if you want to drill safer wells at lower costs using seismic, then you got to get a hold of Alan Bertain and work with his team at BRT Energy Advisors. If you check out our podcast from episode 70, you'll see that not only he understands geophysics, business, and people, but he also explains complicated subjects in a clear and simple way. Visit them at www.brtenergy.com forward slash PBE. Three, Three two, two, one. one. Let's go! Wow, man, I am your host of the PBE podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, and joined by, of course, co-host and co-founder of the PBE podcast, Mr. Matt, the Skip Scipion. What's up, big dog? Dude, not much, big dog. Oh, man, <laughs> we had a good one today. I'm not going to lie. I mean, if you if you are watching this online try to timestamp where the shirts change that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> it kept going man it kept going and uh and you know for us and certainly me getting back that six years of experience in the permian basin and and meeting scott taylor you know early in my career and watching mm-hmm. him, a loose electron just buzzing around the industry <laughs> It's just, you know, he's there and he's the microseismic guy. And man, when, when he came into the office and had a meeting and talked microseismic and what value it's bringing and what we're talking about, you know, what are these results we're talking about? I vividly remember those conversations. I remember him coming to the office, sitting down with the president, you know, the company and and really talking out what we're trying to do with microseismic and how it's bringing value to us as geoscientists. But at the end of the day, how is it increasing the value and the product of what we do as an operator? Mm -hmm. And I mean, for, I mean, the thought provoking ideas that that project that we were on, you know, gave us, I mean, that that's kind of where for me, that's where I moved into my thesis. That's where I moved. It inspired me in a lot of other ways. But I mean, and that all stemmed from Scott Taylor coming in our office and talking micro seismic, man. It, it, I mean, lights out being able to explain the fundamentals of micro seismic to someone who had absolutely no clue what it was at the time. I was like, what is, I know seismic data. What's micro seismic? Like, let's, I, I, I've looked at 3D all day. I, what, what is this? And it was just this. For me, it was a brand new concept, but him being able to break things down, talking about moment tensor inversion, and then now today what they're doing with his new company and, and how far the technology has progressed from that initial meeting that we had, is, it's, it's crazy, man. It's lights out. Uh, this show has so much to do with progression, true progression, and what it takes, the risk involved, the commitment, the persistence, you know, these things that we have to have in our lives to be successful, the things that mm-hmm. make the big stories that we get to talk about 10, 20 years from now in that development. And man, getting to know Scott, getting to know your story, sir. Welcome to the PBE podcast. I'm Scott Taylor. I'm the like one of the co-founders and the CEO of a technology company called Reservoir Imaging Solutions. Um, we primarily use um, geophones uh, and or uh, distributed acoustic sensing fiber measurements to um, 
employ, you know, standards and more advanced microseismic processing techniques. I've been in the industry um, predominantly on, on the, the services side um, for the past 16 years now. And, uh, you know, for that, I was, I was more involved on the, on the finance side. Thank you for joining us. Scott Taylor, 16 years experience on the front lines, truly developing microseismic as it was developing and being used in the industry by the by the frackers, the original guys in 2007 in this technology, fiber optics. I mean, I, could, I was blown away for like an hour straight in the conception part of this show because of his experience. And the way he just articulates that story, right? It's engaging as hell. I lost track of time going, I don't know if we're going to finish this story in the first day. <laughs> it didn't. We, we made it two days and it was worth every second of it, man. I've really got a lot of value, a lot of information, and I got a ton, a ton of really new and different ideas, knowing a little bit more the intricacies of microseismic. Scott Taylor, thank you for joining us, man. Thank you so much for having me. You guys really humble me with like the really kind praise. Um, you know, I don't know. I just have to say, I mean, like it's, it's my story. Um, I still love what I do. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of scars along the road, man. A lot of hard learning, um, a lot of uh, failures, a lot of misunderstanding. And, you know, the, I think the only thing it's, it's kind of kept me going here is I really love what I'm doing. And I think it's infinitely cool to be able to, you know, be at that like 2000, 3000, 4,000 feet away and contemplate, being able to, you know, see where all this stuff is, is moving in the subsurface and, you know, trying to help work on something that, you know, will make a, a big problem a little bit more efficient working with really, really smart, sharp people. So, but yeah, persistence um, is definitely, definitely been required <laughs> for the past, uh, past near term here, but really yeah. a chance again to come out here and share my story with the community. The community is grateful. I, I speak on behalf of them. I know it's true because, man, like the, just getting your perspective of microseismic and how you see it, how you hear it, how that's totally different than probably 99.9% .9 of the people that are listening to this podcast. We don't have the ability to see and hear what you see when microseismic data is coming back. And oh, by the way, it logically makes sense that the engineers and the operators need this information as they're fracking and getting down a well trying to make it as the best well they can you could potentially eliminate a lot of mistakes skip those stages and you know each stage is like a million dollars i mean you're really there's so much value in this information if you can just wrap your mind the hardest part in my opinion about what you do the hardest part is making a prediction and then seeing it in the data, seeing it in the results, hearing it from your interpretation of that data too. And it starts with the right geologic model. And I mean, with Magma Cam and the way I'm thinking about this whole thing, it's there, we're there. We could do it. We, you can design that model that makes those predictions. It's specific and it's repeatable and you can get after it. Start developing these cubes. If the operators are doing this, we, we have the technology, we have the ideas, and we have the models that allow them to drastically increase their performance. And together, the tide is rising. Like you said, man, we're coming out of it. You're providing value to the industry and for professionals like us and the operators, man, I, I just thank you for everything you've been through. Thank you very much, Ken. I really appreciate it. Skips, anything before we go on the intro? Before what, what's what just dropped out for you, man? Specifically, dude, I, I, I was gonna say for me, what dropped out well, first and foremost, is Scott's background. I mean, 
the amount that he went through before the age of 25, just more than I'd say 99% of people will experience throughout their career. And I mean, learning those lessons early and, you know, and then building from that, from those failures, like you were saying to, you know, your company today. And then on top of that, discussing, you know, how these different principles that you guys are developing uh, at Reservoir Imaging Solutions. Uh, I said that right, right? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. All right. At uh, Reservoir Imaging Solutions, uh, as far as, you know, understanding how as we continue to pump stages, we can actually get better resolutions on the stages that we've already pumped prior as far as understanding the breakdown or, uh, yeah, the leak off and like, and it's, it's just, it's phenomenal. The work that he's been doing and the, and where micro seismic is progressing. It's something that is not only going to improve efficiency in the in, in industry, it's also going to de-risk a lot of these assets moving forward. Wow. Well said. Anything that you want to wrap it up with, Scott? Anything dropped out specifically for you uh, in this show? And then we'll just we'll get right into the conception. Yeah, I think just the alignment of like the way that we kind of like see the landscape of like having a really good, like trying to build an initial model, employ, you know, a multiplicity of diagnostics to trap out the variables that maybe are less refined or more difficult to 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 quantify. And then use that organically to, to reinforce that model and then step off, you know, on the subsequent wells and the pads and use it for, you know, better well spacing decisions, uh, better completion designs, overall more efficient and effective um, resource recovery. And then, you know, once that model that you've stepped off on that like local, you know, post stamp part of the earth, you start moving into different chemical regimes or different stress regimes and you've got different structural um nuances there you're probably gonna have to go back and recalibrate that again and, and do some more diagnostics so you know I, that's i couldn't agree with that more wow perfectly said man let's get into the conception part of the show with scott taylor thank you again man have a good day let's stay connected see you may 5th oh, yeah yep. live we're going snoopy. to cinco to drinko yes <laughs> snoopy will be there and thirsty yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the conception part of the PBU podcast with a friend of ours and someone who as a young professional with six years kind of developing and getting to know people in industry, what works, what doesn't Scott Taylor, that dude's just, there's that tornado. (laughs) He's there there. and people are using them. People are understanding, you know, from his perspective, what's going on with micro seismic, how Mm -hmm. is listening to the fractures of when we stimulate wells in the subsurface, how is that helping us? get more money out of the ground, get more value from all this money being spent. We did it. We had experience with Scott. I mean, it was mm-hmm. unbelievable technology, very interesting concepts. And I truly believe yeah. Scott is on the front lines of this and we yeah. get, we get to hear his story. Exactly. And I mean, being on the forefront of the micro seismic industry and really understanding how effective this technology can be. And, you know, as far as how these, you know, how these fractures are propagating, you know, your length versus your height versus it's just Scott was there from like day one. So having him on the show, this is this is going to be a good one, folks. That's all I'm going to yeah, say. I certainly had a had an interesting, interesting experience like when I was younger to, to get where I am today. And uh, so I'm very happy to be here. <clears throat> right on Scott tell us kind of how that began college career where you got your undergrad how did this affinity of micro seismic geophysics how did you fall into that young professional career I don't even know how old you are I'm guessing like 28 30 but yeah. that's like you might be older that's just what 41 you're, dude you're 41 what yeah 
What? I'm 41, <laughs> dude. I've been I've been in this industry since 2004. Let's go. <laughs> interesting, dude. That's what's really interesting. You're on the front lines of science. You're on the front lines of interpretations. You're listening. You are truly listening to the intricacies of the planet reacting to us, stimulating its wells. You've been doing that for so long. And look at you. You're youthful. You're just full of energy. And it's because you're, you're pressing the boundaries. You're, list, you're trying to create value. And, I, and the last point I'll make before we get into your story well, is- it also might be because my wife says that I'm starting to look fat and old. And she just sent me to get punished with our- uh, our neighbors who do this boot camp. So maybe this workout glow. <laughs> oh, uh, I do not do physical things. Fuck that. I rode dirt bikes my whole life. I did it before. I don't care. I'm out. Uh, but here's what I was going to say, dude. It's, it's business has a truly foundational kind of Machiavellian. It's ruthless. Business is ruthless because it's based on results. If you don't get results, then you're done. Your business is done. You're not going to be around for very long. You might fool a few people, but you're not going to stay around because it's it's mm -hmm. ruthless like that. So your experience, and now you're telling me, I'm, I'm shocked, I really am, that you've been in the industry for that long, that you're that old. I would have never even imagined it. But you being here and still pushing the envelope, there's something going on here, and I want to know all about it. Absolutely. So I'm originally from, from Vancouver, Canada. I uh, graduated high school in, in 1998. Pumped the brake. <laughs> Took a, took a year off and started playing uh, playing water polo for, for Team Canada. And, uh, and then I went and did a bunch of traveling in Europe and had some fun. Did a, did a year of uh, finance uh, at the local university in Vancouver called the University of British Columbia. And uh, I don't know, I had a bad time in high school. Mine and my, my best friend killed himself in grade 12. So I was kind of like seeing all the different things that were, you know, kind of like triggers and whatnot. So I figured the best thing for me was to go out of, of the city. So at first I moved to yeah. Calgary. Um, I went into continuing the finance program there, did a little bit of poli side, did a little bit of, of engineering and uh, petroleum engineering and physics there as well. And I decided that I wanted to leave Canada. So I got my grades up and I applied to go to a place called Lugano, Switzerland. And so moved over there and that was was there for a couple of years and it was like a very very interesting experience so probably about 200 250 kids representing about 80 different countries class sizes about like you know 10 to 12 people so i really got to make some friends from around the world um i've always been a guy that likes to travel likes to eat different types of, of food and it was it was wonderful it was a paradise so yeah that was that was a lot of fun um <clears throat> I uh, then decided to uh, fall in love with a uh, very pretty uh, Russian girl, and we moved. Let's go! <laughs> yeah, moved to Barcelona, and we lived there until her visa ran out, and then I actually went back to Moscow with her, and I moved. What, <laughs> what year is this, dude? This is right at the beginning of Putin's reign. Uh, this is uh, 2002 to 2003. I lived in Moscow, I lived in downtown Moscow. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I went. So you're, you're, my, you're not even 25 yet. And you've seen more of the world. 20, than I was 20, I was 22 when I moved over there, man. I learned language. Um, Tell me something. I, I was going to say, I was going to say, that's another thing going. I mean, you know, there's like Latin roots and like English and Spanish, but going from Latin roots to basically Russian. I, I don't even know how to describe the Russian language, but yeah, totally no connection whatsoever. It's difficult. I that? mean, there's like, there's like four B's. So as an English, yeah. 
people there and you like go to the subway the first time and you're trying to like pronounce phonetically out like the, yeah. the Darren Metro stops. You're like, dude, there's four Bs. What's going on here? So like, <laughs> I was going to say it's, you're, you're going from, you know, you know, well, English or any Latin language that has at least the same ish alphabet to a language yeah. where I don't even recognize half the letters. It was tough. It took like probably beyond no, no, no bullshit. It probably took me about six months just to be able to like look at the wall while I was on the Metro or like walking on the street and be able to say it in my head, like phonetically what the, <laughs> <laughs> Dude. tell me something about geophysics in Russian. I don't think I can do that. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, we're gonna go to the bar and get let's hear it. Let's hear it. Need to, need to ease into it. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna disrespect the technical community by trying to try to technical <laughs> unfortunately. Good call. Good call. So, trying uh, to bait you with that one. Right. No, that's that's not gonna happen because I'm gonna anger like the super high end like Eastern European like viewership, the PBs, like oh, yeah. Disrespect your language, but anyway, I had a time. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience, actually. So I, I got my first degree in Switzerland, and then I continued doing uh, through. It was like a subsidiary of, of uh, New York University. They had like a sister program over in Moscow, so I did that. Did some more finance and like more like MBA type of classes, and then I started working for uh, TUSRIF, which is the U.S. Russia Investment Fund. It was a I think 400 or 500 million dollar seed fund from from Congress that wow. uh, was designed to try to create a Western style financial system in in Russia. And so this was the first it was called Delta Bank and Delta Credit and was the first bank that ever um, uh, was trying to do like commercial leasing, um, you know, commercial leasing in the oil field. So like you know, being able to get like pipes and just like access to like debt financing to be able to build businesses. So that was incredibly interesting um i loved it uh we got down to the point where i thought i was gonna like stay there because it was like really starting to take off that was like one of the first like sort of inflection points in in russia after they, they had sort of converted back uh from from communism and i actually thought i was going to stay there but uh you know that didn't really happen um the uh one of the vice presidents asked me to uh, to reconcile the database of uh all the different uh credit accounts that have been out there and i guess the guy didn't think i could read or, or write russian he thought i was kind of some like retard <laughs> just like so, every day and so i came up to him like i was like i was like hey sergey i was like like maybe we should go have a beer after work i i've kind of finished that task that you uh you gave me but i found something and i probably shouldn't tell anybody but you so what turned out was that this dude had lent out the same like high-end like apartment building downtown moscow like I don't know, like 15 times to like various like cousins and mothers and brothers and sisters. I told him that and I was like, yeah, I don't believe really in any trouble. Be like, you asked me to do a job and you know, this is the result. So he's like, yeah, you want no problem, man. It's like, you're cool. Let's, let's go out. So we went out you know, gambling and hang out to about two or three o'clock in the morning and left it off and gave me a hug. He's like, yeah, everything's fine. Don't worry. It's all good. So I show up for work the next day and these two like freaking ape gorilla guys come up <laughs> anymore and they cut my like security card and they kicked me out of the front door and i was like what me to go back to canada <laughs> <laughs> whoa yeah so but it as a it was a good experience because i think for the first time you understand um kind of like i'm, I'm assuming no severance in that situation <laughs> uh, that's a negative <laughs> <laughs> he stiffed me up my final page yeah <laughs> 
but anyways like i think it's like it's like a cultural perspective like um you know understanding like the xenophobia and that like sort of that entire like paradigm that like normally like the white guy from like vancouver canada probably would never have experienced that before and so it's like mm-hmm. Nice, nice learning lesson. But I mean, like what remains there is uh, I've got like lots of really good friends. Um, it was the first time I really got uh, introduced into into the oil business. So one of my very good friends, uh, Olga, her dad was the last minister of finance uh, under uh, Premier Gorbachev. And he started up one of the, the big oil companies. It was called uh, Severnaya Neft, which means Northern Oil. And they... Um, got amalgamated sort of shortly after you know that whole debacle where like Putin sat down with all the oligarchs and said you guys are going to stay out of politics and I'm going to stay out of your business and that was the beginning of sort of the I don't know consolidation of of the uh, first generation of the oligarchs into you know into what what the industry is there so he he was actually smart enough to uh, read the writing on the wall. He sold out his assets and he got out of the country. Um, his daughter still lived there, but like he's completely out of it. But just having a chance to like hang out with this dude and see him like building these train lines up to like Siberia where he's getting these oil fields, having a chance to go and see that stuff. I was like, wow, this is this is intense. This is really interesting. Yeah. Dude, I'm blown away that you're just telling me this right now. Quick interruption. Sorry, but how is your st- how's your Wi-Fi or whatever you're getting your internet from? Because I'm getting a little bit of glitchy audio. Just want to check. Sorry to interrupt. If we could fix it for the rest of the show, that'd be great. If we can't, we could try to edit it out, obviously, in post-production. How's the Wi-Fi? 100% signal right now when I'm sitting, like, right beside, like, my fiber line. So I'm sorry. I can tell you, though, that, like... Um, periodically here in denver like we have we have a transition here this is like the last big snowstorm of the year and i live in west of uh, downtown denver and sometimes it gets not so good so um yeah if it gets really bad i mean i'm i'm sorry i don't know what what to do here yeah no i i I know we can work through it it's been worse before i just wanted to check if it's possible that there's something going on you can fix it but no this is this is still doable, and we are still in the conception part of the show with Scott Taylor. This is. Yeah. This Seems is with a few nuggets of uh, my background. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to take away from that experience because that is how you became who you are, yeah. and that's how you have this unique company and this unique approach to the whole industry. What you're providing in value, we get to that in the drill down segment. What was it? From that transition of where we're at, where we're just talking about, how did the transition and this kind of pivot, I would guess, go boom, oil and gas and and geoscience, engineering, fractures, geophysics, you know, you could have went anywhere in the oil and gas industry with your background. You went science. Yeah, so actually, um, I went back to Canada after I left Russia, and I worked uh, for Dundee Securities and for, you know, just basically got into like the finance side of the business and I didn't like it. Um, so I quit that. I moved back to, to Switzerland uh, and started trading commodities um, with some of my friends that I went to school with there. So I was living back again in, in Lugano. Um, nice place on a lake, beautiful there and trading like, you know, 18 hours a day, smoking two packs of cigarettes, had uh, like basically walking distance from a casino that's open 24 hours a day. So Made a lot of money, gambled away a lot of money, ended up uh, a net zero. Um, 
and came back to Canada and really was like kind of soul searching what I wanted to do. And that's where I had a chance to go and start working for this little engineering company in, in Vancouver uh, called Terra Sciences. And they were actually, um, they had won a, a government grant to develop the first generation of the hardware, not the software, the hardware uh, for doing passive micro seismic monitoring. And the, the auspice for that there was in 2000 and Ooh, I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, probably 2001 or 2002, uh, Imperial, wow. which is the, the subsidiary of, of Exxon in Canada, um, you know, they're doing cyclic steam stimulation. It's a huff and puff type of recovery, very heavy bitumen oil. There's a Wabasca shale that sits above that. And so it would go up and down, up and down. And displacement at the surface, guess how much the ground moved at the surface for one of the cycles? What? All right, let me think about this. I'm standing like 20 feet away from you. You're six feet tall. There's no way it could rose more than the height of you. Sometimes like three, like two and a half, three meters. So like, like six, seven. What? Over an entire cycle, the ground would go up and down like that. So they're only recovering down like probably six, 700 meters. I'm sorry for my use of the metric system. It's, uh, right. Just I, give us the convergence. I understand. <laughs> hey. Hey, I mean, when you're when working, working in FUs or, or freedom mutants is, you know, <laughs> it could get confusing yeah. at times. So the temperature and the, and the, uh, the temperature and, the, and the, the measures are still like right where I cling to my metric system background. Yeah. But so I'll, I'll try to I'll try to stick in the feet. So, but yeah. anyways, <laughs> non-trivial amount of displacement, obviously, um, you know, if you can't monitor that cap rock integrity, um, you're pumping down at, you know, very high temperatures and there's an opportunity for that, uh, steam to mix with the bitumen and become liquid and mobile and it comes up to the surface and it can contaminate the surface so that's what it they had, had problems with that and so one of the um one of the fortes of this this little engineering company called terra sciences um was basically that uh they had done a lot of um industrial monitoring solutions um using acoustic sensors vibration sensors and so they were kind of the first mover in Canada. And um, I started there oof, in probably like the fourth quarter of, of 2004. And it was kind of like an exploratory, you know, role where I could kind of do anything I wanted it was like a friend of the family. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I still kind of wanted to maybe like look at like doing something more on like the mining side. Like that's where I was kind of more interested. Um, when I was in the finance industry before that, I started taking some you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, professional education courses in, you know, geology and geophysics. And I really, really liked it. And I think where, you know, after, you know, we, we did probably, um, probably a total of about a hundred of these pads um, were instrumented by, by Terra Science or Jones company. And I got to go out in the field and I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then what really, really got me hooked I think was in, I can't remember if it was the, the end of 2004, the very beginning of 2005, there was a technical conference in the Middle East. And that was kind of like where I think we met people from Saudi Aramco. Um, and so at that time there, Saudi Aramco was planning a, a really big permanent microseismic survey on the, I believe, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but like part, part of the Gore field. I don't think I can, I can still say what, what part of it, but the part where they're experimenting and trying to look at the effects of water floods. And I believe now it's a test site for looking at uh, CO2 floods. So it's just, were, were, was this more or less to also 
you know, analyze cap rock integrity, or is this just a completely different application? You don't need no, to say. No, they really it. wanted to look at fluid flow. They want okay. to image fluid flow. Um, so, uh, the so interesting. The the company I was with was was really specialized in in the hardware in the data acquisition piece. Gotcha. What we were doing was competing against like Schlumberger and Halliburton and Baker Hughes, but you know, who are already entrenched, obviously, in chasing like a large large sort of first mover technical project. So we banded up with um, Peter Duncan when Microseismic Inc. was like, I think two people, three people, it was like straight up startup. Like they had done like one or two jobs. And this other gentleman named Christoph Maison who started up Magnitude, which became the Microseismic business unit for BS Fusion under Baker Hughes and CGG. So as a 24, 25 year old, I got to meet these two dudes that basically created that you know that industry in europe and created that industry over there in you know in the united states um man so that was um that was very interesting the the owner of the company and peter were flirting with with kind of joining forces and i just think that there was a you know it just never worked out it was you know fortunate but anyways we did the project and long story short it was a total disaster um the equipment the equipment (laughs) worked for a very uh, let's say less than the advertised period of time. And the, um, it was a lot of painful lessons learned, um, you know, very demanding clients, the expectations were very high. This was something with a very high profile new technology, but like that was my first kick in the teeth really, uh, from an engineering standpoint of like understanding, like, wow, there's a big difference from writing a proposal and having all these like happy, fancy, like dreams of like, we're going to be the market leader and look at how cool we are to like the cold, hard reality of like absolute failure. Oh, <laughs> it's binary oh, and no. there's, there's nothing to do. And having to fly literally from Canada to Saudi Arabia to these dudes with a group of people trying to shoot this while you have very angry people. So that was a, was a very, very interesting learning experience for sure. Dude. I'm freaking captivated, man. And I know it's because I, I was going to say the, the amount of, business experience that you've had at the age of 25 is more than I'd feel like most professionals will have in a lifetime. As far as <laughs> yeah. just the ups and downs. I mean, from but you learn more from the down <laughs> skip, man. I can tell I, that, you. Oh, that's <laughs> what I was saying. That's what I was going to say. I mean, from getting kicked yeah. out of Russia, more or less. Yeah. To, 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 to this experience. I mean, oh my God, man. That's yeah. But anyways, yeah, sorry to cut you off. So very clientele. We keep cutting me off. So so at that point we had kind of like we got the project stabilized it was about 2006 and we had like we were a tiny little company and it was a family-run business and basically i got sent out by the the owner of the company ian to go and try to make a recommendation which way we would go should we go and try and you know merge with with microseismic inc because they were just sort of at the point where they were going to go and try and do their like their series a capital raise that they did with with altera and with chef technology advancers or are we going to go with Schlumberger because Schlumberger started sending like all these people over to, you know, to come down to our little shop here in Vancouver and take us out for fancy dinners and talk with us and whatever. So we, you know, we ended up um, making our move and kind of going with, with the folks at Schlumberger. Ian made that decision. It wasn't, wasn't my decision. It wasn't my company. And, you know, we did this um, another like really big first project it was called the Bakken research consortium and i believe we we like put the project together in late part of 2006 um it was a multi-client you know it was like uh 
probably like eight or nine uh, different operators and Microseismic Inc. was there doing their surface stuff. We were there doing like this near surface, like buried array uh, type of configuration. So we would drill these little shot holes, put geophones in there permanently. And, oh. grid. and that was actually, to my knowledge, the first time that someone actually had done that. Now, wow. that commercially <laughs> afterwards is a... <laughs> different story it's a different story and they actually they, they did a lot better i mean it was a very primitive approach but my thought was just from a, like a very like simplistic background um you know starting to get a little bit more familiar technically i had a decent background in audio and acoustics and like sort of building you know that those widgets and like understanding noise right so i was like okay well you're probably going to have the highest probability of having noise at the surface right with wind trucks and other things moving around the oil field so Let's try to bury them and 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 find a way to to make this permanent network that you could turn off and on, on demand. Mm -hmm. So again, like we did that, and Schlumberger tested out their first, I think, tractored uh, geophone array with their VSI shuttles on that project called the Omega Lock, and you know the Omega Lock worked pretty well. Uh, the near surface stuff that we had was um, didn't really record any signals, and um, I don't really know to what extent the uh, MSI deliverable was, was accepted or not, but it was, it was a challenging environment, obviously, where noise suppression and very limited signal at the surface and near surface and going through very complicated geologic layers where you've got anhydrites and understanding how that forms a lens and can refract you know, the, the energy that's coming through the ground. It was, again, a very underwhelming, disappointing uh, moment, I can remember. <laughs> Being on a bachelor party in Philadelphia, having been just chased out of uh, uh, chased out of the Philly stadium because I was wearing a Blue Jays jersey and <laughs> hot dog thrown at me by some like forty year old woman. Brotherly love, man. No, it's not not for not for foreign sports teams. Yeah, <laughs> getting a hot dog thrown by a forty year old woman. Get the yeah, she's like Rod Barajas. Rod Barajas, that bum, the bum catcher <laughs> for the Jays, hit a walk off grand slam home run, and me and my buddy Eric stood up. We're like, yeah. That blue Pat Tabler jersey on, and he had his Roy Halladay jersey on. This woman threw a tray of hot dogs at us. us out. And then I almost got assaulted in the bathroom. So I was like leaving. And I remember getting this phone call from he's like, We found a signal. We found a signal. It's like, Yes. And then I came back and sobered up. And two weeks later, I found out that that was not a signal. <laughs> oh, so, man. So I started to really think to myself, okay, like how important is, is signal processing? How important is being able to suppress noise? Um, how, how germane is that to like this, making this entire thing work? And also having seen, you know, this pretty, you know, you know, engineering done in Canada with a low budget, um, you know, that hadn't worked very well, that, that there was obviously some, some improvements there. So there was a sort of a holistic uh, package of information you know, from a hardware standpoint and a software standpoint and a data management standpoint. And, you know, the company I was at was, was not really, um, not willing to invest um, to get the software piece up. And I was kind of starting to get pretty concerned about that in 2007. Um, we did this, what was it called? A strategic alliance uh, with Slumberjay. And so that, that gave basically, I was working with a gentleman named Mark Puckett, who was over top of like US sales uh, for their wireline division. He was the one who was starting the microseismic business for Schlumberger in the United States. And then I had one colleague, Brian Plumer in Denver, Sandy Connors in, in Dallas, Les Nutt in Houston, and then the international dudes. 
Uh, so I got to go and sell and basically under the umbrella, every opportunity that popped up within that octopus tentacle of Schlumberger, I got pulled into fly down there, go meet with those guys and start, start doing these, these sales and, um, you know, start getting a little bit of traction, but, uh, you know, by, I would say by the, the end of 2008, it was pretty clear what had happened. You know, um, I think we were a little like naive, uh, company and the, the owner was a little bit naive and basically they had, they had just like figured out what we had and what the designs were of stuff that was cool and they replicated it themselves <laughs> and once they finished sucking the juice out they're like it was pretty clear that we were going to get tossed to the side so that was you know pretty disheartening um you know i was still like had quite a bit of fire in my belly i felt like you know there's a lot of promise for this technology obviously hydraulic fracturing started to really take off after yeah you know, 2000, 2007, 2008, I saw a company blowing up. I saw Christoph, you know, make a bunch of money selling his company to VS Fusion. And I'm at this point, I'm like 28, 29. I'm like, okay, let's, let's do it. So I uh, walked to my boss's office and I said like, look, man, this is going to work. I quit. And um, so we actually, he owed me a bunch of money. So I sued him. It's the first time I won a lawsuit, took that money and a hundred thousand dollar check from uh, my, my godfather, Peter, uh, that, that uh, uh, is quite wealthy. And I started up a company called Octa Reservoir Technologies in 2009. And uh, so I, I got a, a visa, uh, moved down to the States, set up shop in Houston and uh, started building, basically trying to build like an integrated hardware and software business. And that's when uh, as well, I started, well, actually when that back a bit, my first exposure to, to fiber optics was, was also pretty unique. So um, while I was still working in Vancouver, we were hired by Phillips and Total to review all of the bids coming in for the first like, major permanent subsea fiber optic installations. Wow. So we had to review, like getting paid for uh, about a half a year, flying over to Stavanger, looking at all the different prototype systems from like OptiSense, OptiFace, and wow. Stingray and whatnot. And then making like a kind of like a working with with the you know the decision makers inside of those companies on their decision matrix and ranking and scoring the different vendors and and seeing you know the really the first implementation on Ecofisk of that that permanent life of field seismic. What stuff. year was the fiber optic stuff? Two thousand seven was my first exposure. Oh my gosh! Okay. So this is you're talking apex so, beginning of micro seismic applied to the oil and gas industry yeah. specifically into fracking. Now you're already looking at fiber optic listening uh, hardware. Dude, you're yeah. on the front effing lines. Yeah. So my background with fiber actually is kind of cool. Um, so my dad had a software company in the in the eighties, and he was working very closely with. Um, um, like was it GE Weapon Systems, Raytheon, a lot of the, the major like defense contractors. Mm -hmm. And his bellywick was being able to take large amounts of data in real time and parse them together and then send them back to some central command center. So like more of like a, a data, data management, data, data aggregation piece. That's right, yeah. One of the uh, p groups that he worked with um, was a gentleman named Jonathan Abel, uh, who was like uh, down in, in Palo Alto, like working and got his PhD at first PhD at MIT, second PhD at, uh, at Stanford. And uh, they worked on uh, the conversion for, for the US military on their, their attack submarines, converting from having towed arrays of hydrophones, like what we do in seismic, right? Where you got those boats that tow hydrophones and they're doing seismic surveys. So the mm -hmm. 
was, okay, this fiber optic thing is coming up. So they basically wanted to take those toad arrays and turn those into fiber that would be welded inside, like kind of like, um, what are they called? Like the, the fins or the nerves that they wrap around like most fish, like on the outside of their, their body. Yeah. So like an array of those. And the idea was to listen with all of the US military fleet simultaneously and try to track enemy submarines, like where the, the Russians and where the Chinese, and where the other people submarines were moving. And the way that you would do that was with very sophisticated noise suppression and signal processing technology. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was something I kind of grew up around uh, when I was a little boy. And when I started to see this stuff, the fiber optics move into the oil business, like, ooh, this is interesting. Like, uh, this is even more interesting. Is, so, is any of the data available as far as the visuals they were getting back from this project is that or is that all just oh yeah like my dad was like mr november and like i think like the one of the calendars for um uh ge uh like in their like in their corporate calendar i think he was like mr november from like 1988 or 89 with standing in this like creepy room like pointing at like a submarine yeah (laughs) other geeks Super 80s with like these really, really like. Well, this will be great for the calendar. Yeah, like yeah. point at the submarine. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, man, the visual of the ocean floor—that would be. Uh, but wow. the other cool thing about the the is is like you know like looking at how sound bounces off of bounces through water versus how yeah. it bounces off sand, which is how we'll get into the final piece of like where I'm actually working at now, is yeah. that solve problem is trying to use acoustic energy to pulse the ground. And look at the difference, the different response because of the different density of how that wave goes through water, uh, how it goes through saline water versus how it goes through sand, which is ultimately the holy grail in in what we're trying to do right now in in diagnostics, right? Today is try to figure out where that sand pack is. Unbelievable. Let's do it, man. Are you guys ready to transfer into the drill down segment with Scott Taylor? You are tuned in to the PBE podcast where we're taking new information, applying it to new real world applications to make discoveries. We got to stop and take a minute and thank our sponsors, BRT Energy Advisors, Better Reservoir Technologies, Results Without the BS. We've had Alan on our show and I can tell you from experience, he definitely has seen seismic from around the world, including of course, right here in the Permian Basin. If you are in the EMP business and you want to use seismic data to increase the value of your assets, or if you want to drill safer wells at lower costs using seismic, then you got to get a hold of Alan Bertain and work with his team at BRT Energy Advisors. If you check out our podcast from episode 70, you'll see that not only he understands geophysics, business, and people, but he also explains complicated subjects in a clear and simple way. Visit them at www.brtenergy.com forward slash PBE. Then we are officially going into the drill down segment with Scott Taylor on the PBE podcast and experiencing your experience and getting to know that in further detail. And now knowing that we are setting up this, this drill down segment to talk about the fundamentals of seismic waves and how they respond in rocks and how it gives us a visual of the subsurface in regards specifically to horizontal wells in the Permian Basin being fracked and drawn back with production. That's what we're after. Fundamentals of that is just break it down very simply. And then what I want to do is jump to the other side of the spectrum because now I am absolutely uh, very intrigued in what you see 
visually, not what you think you see, what what you hear and what you see when you're live listening to these responses, you know, the last job you did or the job, the next job you're going to do. I want to get in your mind, dude, on how you see and hear this data compiling with the hardware, how the software is processing it and the visual that you uh, come up with, man. So let's let's drill down. This is okay. So, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, the term microseismic is, is small seismic. So it, it comes from, from earthquake seismology where you've got, obviously you guys are well, well aware of this is great structural geologists, both of you. You've got movement in the subsurface. You've got um, stress and strain that will build up on those faults to the point where you exceed a failure envelope and then they move. There's displacement and there's displacement in a variety of different motions. So you can characterize really um, you know, which, where you have those points of failure in the crust, if we look at like the, the highest level and where they have the highest probability of failing, like places like, you know, um, in California, in Japan, um, in Indonesia, where, you know, like more like more probabilistically, like there's, there's larger zones where you've got those different um, crustal plates that are moving over one another in a certain way to create these larger energy releases or, you know, magnitude of events. And so, um, you know, microseismic was originally developed to track um, the United States' enemies uh, and their underground nuclear testing, where they're trying to subvert, um, I think it was like one of the nuclear test ban treaties. It's like to take, to basically have an array of these, um, you know, geophones or seismometers, these very sensitive acoustic devices that would be placed in a network around the world. And you would try to take all of those disparate measurements focus them together and yeah. to the Russians or listen to the Pakistanis or the Indians or the Israelis or the Chinese and understand exactly when um, they were going to, they, they were testing uh, these nukes underground. And so that, um, you know, approach of, of using surface-based uh, beam forming technology is that's really where, um, where microseismic ink where like Peter went and draw from through from the well um, leaning on, you know, legends of the past from, you know, from our national labs um, and, and working with those people to refine that technology and to transpose it into, into, um, you know, what it is today, um, yeah. surf, surface microseismic processing. The downhole piece came uh, through a, a gas technology Institute grant with a guy named Chris Wright, who is the CEO of Liberty. So that's, oh. Dude, he started from he started Pinnacle Technologies. He he's the man. He's the man who started the whole whole industry. Wow. So, so um, person I've never met. I hope to meet him one day. He lives here in Denver. I'm sort of biding my time. Met this guy? No, I wanted to. I'm waiting until I I've kind of finished my opus. My opus is is uh, <laughs> like two months away. I want I want to like impress this dude, man. He's seen it all. <laughs> <laughs> well done well done. i want to show up with some like half-baked pizza dude <laughs> <laughs> i like it timing is everything timing yeah. is everything patience and timing you gotta, you gotta make sure you're really confident what you yeah. <laughs> but yeah so he he basically um started that company up on his credit cards like a like scrappy entrepreneur and he built that um you know into pinnacle um was the first mover there doing like the downhole technology um they partnered up with a, with a manufacturer called Geospace Technologies um, and Reservoir Imaging and did, did um, uh, a lot of like, you know, a lot of good engineering to stabilize that, that downhole uh, geo, geophone based uh, service. And then obviously they, you know, 
They sold out partially to Carbo Ceramics, the profit manufacturer, and then Carbo flipped it to, to Halliburton. Um, I believe that was in like 2008 at one of the conferences I was at. I remember it getting announced and I was like, holy cow, this is like such a wow. <laughs> amount of money. Like, this is so cool. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. So we're cool. listening to the reservoir. You're setting out the geophones. We kind of got the general idea of how you're setting this up. But do yeah, you so I think, I think we like to get to the basics of like where the original hope was um, for the technology and where it missed the mark with a conventional approach and why we've seen such uh, a reduction in utilization. Um, oh, I would say we probably hit our peak utilization of, of microseismic both surface and downhole probably, probably in 20, uh, 2015 or 2016. Wow. Uh, and then it well, when, collapsed. When things started to ramp back up again, right? Yeah. And they ramped yeah. back up and 2018 was really robust. 2018 was yeah. robust. But again, there was a couple of large projects and I think it just kind of missed the mark. I mean, really what the, you know, the completion engineers want to know where their fluid goes, where the propant goes and what the fracture geometry looks like. And really what is the cluster efficiency like on these limited entry designs? What, which of these clusters are more or less efficient and which of them uh, are, not, are, are not so efficient, right? And then yeah. down to the reservoir engineering people, they want to know, where am I getting my production from? Where is my pack? Yeah. And, and if you look at, you know, all of us, what we were really trapping, like with these bubble maps and just, you know, spending a huge amount of, of the industry spent a huge amount of time and money and effort trying to transpose what was done reliably on the surface for 3D seismic, 4D seismic, where the lag time between acquisition and delivering a final interpreted results is months, if not like more than a year. They want yeah. to that down into, we need it right now. Real time yeah. has to be perfect. And so there's all these yeah. baseline technical things that you have to swath through and knock out. And they have to be working really, really well to give an answer that, that is meaningful. And yeah. the problem across the board as a service guy that was deep in it, we, you know, all of us didn't do a very good job of being as transparent as we could have with our customers, you know, in that frothy part of the, you know, 2013, 2014, when. You know, do, do you really think that's just it. like you said, though, it's it's the client was demanding those deliverables at, you know, and we're, when in, a, in, a, in a wind in a window that was just not, you know, not something that could have been done. It, it can be done. It's just it, it to refine it to the point where you get that baseline result that's good is an incredible amount of effort to do it so that there's not a dramatic between what you're doing in real time versus post-processing. That's, that's really tough. And, you know, so people, when they first were being sold this, you know, concept of, you know, real-time diagnostics and trying to use this on the fly to make decisions, you know, in certain, you know, more simplistic geo, geo um, I would say geological settings, uh, it worked pretty well or really well. But in more complicated ones, as we started looking at, you know, multiple different pay zones, we started looking at effects of depletion, we started getting more and more and more complicated. Um, you know, there were times where, you know, clearly being inside the tent, it was, there was a lot of pressure to, to push the product out fast. And yeah. it wasn't the best product. And I also think that, you know, just um, the other thing where I, I can see that was, it has been a learning experience for me is just how much effort it's taken 
to learn complete, try to learn completions, try to learn the nomenclature, learn reservoir engineering, learn what is important to the other people outside of the GNG realm and listen to them and try to really um, make sure that what you're generating from that, that microseismic product is something that that's A is reliable, that provides an answer product to those, to those specific questions. And you can stand behind it and you can prove it in the context of marrying it up with crosswell strain or marrying it up with recovered core or doing it production flowback and being able to have a unified story from all these different diagnostic measurements or offset um, you know, pressure monitoring so that you've got like a holistic story there. Um, the other thing that I think has been, been really tough is this sort of the over, overselling of, of, of the actual physics of what a microseismic dot is and where mm -hmm. we're very excited that this bubble map showing like, you know, clouds that would be in trends with, aligned with, with, you know, maximum horizontal stress or with some type of natural geologic feature are exactly telling you where your fluid and where your sand is going. And unfortunately, yeah. that's, that's just not the case. I mean, you've got, yeah. um, if you look at the, you know, the fracture mechanics, you've got a, a tensile fracture and it's going to open up like this. And as it's moving forward, you are going to impart shear stresses on a lobe that's going to be at some angle off of that. And that's where you're getting the micro seismicity or the other end member that makes it, you know, more complicated is it kind of like, I like to equate it. If you've got a, a rock chip on your upper right-hand corner of your windshield of your car, and you push with all your force on the bottom left, imagine that's where your, your limited entry is putting fluid into the system and you push in there as hard as possible. You're going to have a bunch of events over there because it's yeah. the least resistance. And so yeah. Just because you have an event doesn't mean necessarily, right, that's where your prop and that's where your fluid yeah. went. Because that, that was something that I know was a big discussion. I mean, yeah. was just like, hey, just because there's an event doesn't mean that's where your prop and your fluid went. But exactly. I mean, it, it gives you, like you said, though, it's understanding what that actually means. It's, it's interpreting it properly, not just, you know, with a blind eye saying, oh, yeah, we huge wing <laughs> yeah this frat there it's just like that was it that was the one it's just like yeah. no it's, it's like we had we were fracturing near wellbore here and we just heard an event out there yeah so the i think that the next major um you know major leap that that i saw um you know boots on the ground probably starting around like 2000 i mean not to say that this was their first project but when it actually started to actually get traction was um, ESG uh, and Ted Urbanacek and Adam Begg, they really had a very strong background in, in geomechanics. And they, they were, I would argue, the first service company to really bring in moment tensor inversion, um, where you're trying to take that dot and understand, you know, that's actually a plane where you're slipping and it's yeah. a certain direction. And they, they took off, their business took off, um, you know, ultimately, I would say from 2010 to 2014, they went gangbusters um, because of that transformation. Basically, like think of it like a, the first lens that's been applied to that data set where you've got that raw foot dot, you're putting it through that lens of that workflow that they had developed, and then getting all this other information value and really geomechanical value that you can understand, you know, the trends of the way that the rock is breaking and relate those back into, into effective stresses and strains, which has a huge amount of importance when you're trying to like you know, complete a single well um, with limited entry, but also looking at a multiplicity of wells in the zippering formation. I mean, it's a 
huge amount of information value that you can get there. So I mean, what is it? What's the average event for one stage in a modern completion of a horizontal well in the Permian Basin? What's the average amount of events in one stage? Oh my God, man. I could I, I couldn't even begin to tell you that. It's it's so incredibly variable. Um, you know, the effects of of basically you have to have enough um competency in that rock to cause to to shear and slip mm-hmm. as we start to get into some of these more like sands types um like things like i did one project in the powder river basin last year um phenomenal project we did like five wells and um you know the upper formation it cracked we got you know hundred thousand events the bottom formations of sand we got like one one hundredth of that so is the I mean, because it's a sand, right? Yeah. It's consolidated, like how much is a sand going to a sandstone that's unconsolidated going to shear to the point where you can recover that signal, you know, 3,000, 4,000 yeah. feet yeah. away? It's just not. It's, it, I mean, if you had a, a, a probe that you stuck into that sand right beside where it failed, yeah, sure, man, you probably couldn't recover that there. But uh, <laughs> geology yeah. and Mother Earth are kind of a complicated, Was, uh, complicated I mean, story. I, I, not to, because I know there's proprietary data, but was this something that they were kind of like tanking these wells or cubing these wells where they were like fracking simultaneously, or was this one after another after another? No, it was a, it was a triple zipper. Um, okay. Offset well spacing. So they had a, a depleted parent well. I mean, and looking at um, depletion effects, effects of zippering, um, you know, and other like, you know, effects of natural fracture. Uh, okay. So is that where you had the, uh, is that where you had your sources was in that offset parent? Well, like, did you go down like the horizontal or was, were you guys straddling? No, no, no. So we went, no, typically what you do is you find like a drilled, but uncompleted a duck well. Um, oh, okay. And you stick your, your geophones out there or the other thing that's less, um, it less amenable to the operator. Cause there's additional cost is you have to pull tubing from like a really, like a crappy producer, like a stripper well, pull yeah. the off. Like that's where I first did that job with uh, Trey uh, and John Spate. Um, yeah. You guys joined Trey Resources. We did that. I can't remember the name of that asset was, but that's what we did. We pulled two stripper wells and we put like arrays of geophones in there. Yeah. There's a plug at the bottom and then you go back and um, either abandon them, I guess, or like go run the tubing back in again. So it's just, yeah. if you can find a duck, it's, it's better. Um, wow. Dude, so uh, a three zipper frack deal, that's like two horizontals and one kind of offset, both vertically and horizontally, or just across one layer? Just across one one layer. Okay. Yeah. Dang. And you're talking about how these three wells interact with one another as a basis of like how how sensitive is one that's next to depleted well versus, you know, the ones that are further to the, the west that are not depleted. Um, Gosh, dude. How does the limited entry design and the fluid volumes uh, cause changes in the geomechanical properties in a naturally fractured reservoir such that you can try to reliably create a consistent fracture geometry? And that's tough, man. That's tough because, like, you know, if you look, you think about these wells we're drilling now across like two miles long, there's not one geomechanical or um, lithological or geochemical regime across that two mile section there. You've probably one, or if you're in a really, really super easy formation, which I I don't know where that exists anymore. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You probably have one, but like, I mean, I I, typically what I see is like, you know, two, three or four different like 
very specific responses that you can correlate back to yeah. the rock physics because there's Personality. a variability there. And that's so oh. one thing I think that's, you know, is, is, is understanding that and being able to interpret that there's, there's value there um, for a lot of people to understand maybe tuning your completion designs and tuning what your, your, your zipper sequencing and relating that back to the variability that you can get, um, you know, like looking at mechanical specific energy, for example, or looking at distributed rock properties along the well bore and really tuning that to that, uh, the completion design, the fluid volumes, the sand loading and all that other stuff to, to there and understand you're going to have a different response. And it's like three micro reservoirs along that, along that lateral. Wow. Dude, the way you explained yeah. that and the way it came to an end, I got something to say. Now, you know, I don't mean to sound offensive. I just love engaging with you and especially right now after this <laughs> conversation. But it sounded like an unrealistic expectation from everybody that was involved in this triple zipper frack and, and, and what they were trying to get back as information. Like we, you, you set out to do something that's never been done and you're, 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 you're coming up with these ideas of what to expect. Isn't that, a, that, that to me, that is the wrong approach. You guys were, the expectations should have been, we are here to listen to this incredibly complex thing and we are we have no expectations of what we're going to get back and what it should imply like that, that talk to me about that conversation dude and how so you i got think that the other thing i've learned too is like what i call like trying to trap uh what you're trying to get like you know typically on these science projects there's some you know well articulated um objectives but from the services side what you really need to do is pay very close attention to what they've already discovered or what they've already trapped and what you're trying to trap um, with that, you know, with that diagnostic measurements um, and how you're going to get to the point of not only taking data, but understanding, and then ultimately be able to deliver something that they believe in so that they can take action off of that. Yeah. And that's something where, I mean, I would say, I mean, it's, I only really feel comfortable, honestly, in the last like probably like year, year and a half of like really being able to implement that type of a framework for, for myself and for, for our mm -hmm. business, like in a way that, you know, we can listen to the customers and kind of act like more of a partner rather than just some, you know, external person that's going to deliver X, Y, and Z exactly to the, the minimum. You know, you really, you really, really got to, to be relevant today. You really got to dig in and really got to like understand how they're going to consume what you're doing and how it's going to add value and how you're going to convince them on the asset team level um, to use this. Right. Right. So, um, and then be upfront. Like, you know, sometimes you have to like also, you know, limit what you think you can get from, you know, a specific deliverable or specific workflow. You're not necessarily going to be able to trap all of that. Uh, those learnings and outcomes that, that necessarily are there. And, where in days in past with enthusiasm and maybe a little bit too much ignorance, you would overpromise and underliver. Got pumped the brakes on that, man. Cause like, that's wow. the thing that like, you know, dam yeah. the damages the reputation for the entire game for the industry. Right. Wow. So um, back to what you originally said. So you're trying to like get to the basics. So the, the essence is, I would say that, you know, with what Ted and Adam at ESG did, you know, um, at the apex of ESG, um, was was phenomenal and and the ultimate learnings that i would say that really got widely adopted throughout the industry through that was the 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 penultimate value from conventional microseismic downhole processing or surface-based microseismic processing is 
really interesting spatial temporal information on the dynamic geomechanical properties of the reservoir. So how is stress and strain being imparted upon the reservoir? How is that changing over time? Looking at like trying to just take like, you know, the metadata and stack it together, like looking at rose plots, right? So looking at the dip, azimuth, and rake space and stack up all these different fractures that you've recorded. You've turned these bubbles, these little skittles into those, redacted those into those, into those like uh, rose plots. And then going back to the geology and saying, does this make sense? Wow. So what can I, you know, an example that was pretty cool is working with, um, worked really closely um, with a big operator there in, in, in Oklahoma. And uh, it was like the first time we were able to take that uh, ourselves, take that, um, you know, moment tensor inversion solution that, that we had done ourselves on like, you know, hundred thousand events over an entire pad of wells and independently deliver those rose plots. And then the client busts out like they had, oh, by the way, we had done core work. And look, there's actually an agreement here. Let's go. I was like, oh, touchdown. I've got it. I've yeah. got the sauce. And then the chief geophysicist says to me, he's like, but which of those are going to stay open? And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> the extra point just dinged off the fucking yeah. post. I was like, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Can't just be stoked. Look, we fit. We figured this out. It makes sense. It all lines up. You've got, you've got a complete story here to take that. Yeah. What's um, And you could match that. You could see a different rose plot response. Um, and we did this for you when you guys were, you know, when you guys were at, at Trey still. You know, we could get mm-hmm. like very distinct pattern um, of that, of showing like a branching effect of what those, which what the orientation of those fractures were. Then the next question obviously was like okay, which of those are water-bearing natural fractures that I don't want to intercept in that yeah. example? And that proved to be pretty tough. Um, I'll go back and I'll honestly say this. Doing that experiment and being on the front lines of that, actually getting to pull that off and watch all that happen, dude, was an amazing experience for all oh, yeah. of us at that company. And yeah. to see it- The amount, the amount I learned from that one project, I mean, it inspired- freaking a lot of the work that i've done afterwards it was just i mean oh like man that means so much that's so cool like that's yeah. really- well it's that's very so cool. true because skipper you go off and do a master's thesis on fracture predictability yeah. off structures like that's very very true and very yeah and 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 i mean it lined up right and it was something that started at boehm out here in california when my first internship and then you know, seeing it applied at Trey and then all of a sudden now I'm applying it to my thesis and it was just like, oh yeah, this lines up perfectly. This is something that can be replicated as long as you have that base knowledge and like that, you know, that data from the start, these things are actually very, very predictable. But, you know, having, <laughs> it needed, I needed to see all three of those things in order to basically validate that in my head. But yeah, the, that project was you know, I don't know how much we can even say about that, but that project was. Yeah, <laughs> I will say, I will say this. My ex, my my question to the experiment and to the results, I was asking the wrong question, and I think your geophysicist that you mentioned is also asking the wrong question. It is not mm-hmm. about what is staying open. It's about figuring out where the hell is the oil actually coming from, folks. Yeah. It's not coming equally in all these stages. Yes, we might have an idea that there's more water coming from this one, but let's just get back to the idea of we should have taken 
a, a lot of precaution and a lot of more in, in uh, intellectual thought on where is the oil actually coming from? What and the variability. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Back to my point there saying like there's, you know, we're drilling a two mile reservoir. I think it's a fool's errand to think in, in many of these complicated structures that the geochemistry supports equivalent production along that entire two miles. It doesn't, yeah, at and, all. And it does not. It does not. No. Not like you said, there, there could be four or five different zones that you see in the geochemistry, and then throughout mm -hmm. that wellbore, those zones can repeat four or five times, right? And but the I two think, yeah, but this yeah. is the okay. hangover, I think, of like the, you know, if we look at the macro level, what, what's caused a lot of um, this perception of this cataclysmic falling off a cliff for the unconventional America, uh, you know, business of America is, is debt fueled binge where everybody was first incentivized to go out and drill as many wells as possible then efficiently drill as many wells as possible, yeah. and drill one small well on the section and try to increase the maximum initial rate of production and flip that and then you know this these these paradigms came in in the midland basin um you know particularly i think it was evident for all of us you know looking at like what happened with concho and dominator that was kind of like the one of the major like wake up periods where like, hey, we're going to put as many straws in this small section of rocks we possibly can. And we're going to make a ton of money. And it's going to be as simple as like, a, you know, recovering an ore body from a mine. And yeah. wow. that 100% proved that that doesn't work. Yeah. And that was and, the entire and I, basis of like, sorry, but I'll be like, that was the basis of the, the reserves. That was the basis of the reserves that were backing up all this debt. And once the, you know, the people, you know, Wall Street particularly figured out that that wasn't the case, We've seen a complete shitstorm, and yeah. we to really go back. Those of us that still remain in this industry, um, you know, through the scars, there is go back, as you said, and take a much harder intellectual uh, uh, workflow there, and say to ourselves, "Wow, that initial working thesis is absolutely incorrect." So, yeah. let's get some more hypotheses, and let's go and test those, and let's go figure it out. And that, that's hell yeah. Amen, amen to that. Hell yeah. Uh, that I mean. Yeah, not to kind of work off of that, it was, you know, we were chasing this rig monster. We were trying to make sure we could hold all of our leasehold, right? We spent all this money on this acreage. We can't yeah. afford to lose it. And if that means we're developing a little bit inefficiently, then that's what happens. And unfortunately, like you said, because of that, you know, a lot of these companies, I mean, a lot of good data was lost. A lot of interpretation was lost and a lot of reservoir and a lot of oil in the ground was lost. And well, that was, that's, kind of, that's the hard part. Yeah, the basis of like having an oil field is managing the pressure from a reservoir mm -hmm. standpoint. And when we have all these frack hits and we have these wells too closely together and we're having commingling, we're destroying that initial, you know, that pressure that's going to drive production, um, you know, in a consistent manner. So, I mean, a lot of the, fortunately, I would say like the, the gentleman that um, I was listening to a podcast, I think um, was probably, probably two years ago. Um, with uh, Bob Burry, guy who, who started Gopher, that frack modeling program. And he really emphasized that, you know, it's really, I think a wake up call, like a lot of these like sections of these reservoirs were, you know, aggressively overhit and the expectations were aggressively um, over the mark. And yeah. the pressure regime inside of those has not been managed, you know, correctly. And I, I think what's encouraging is that those that are left, you know, in the industry and those are still focused on, there's, a, I think there's a significant appetite to, learn from those mistakes and, and right. make it better going forward. 
That's right, dude. And mix it with a new geologic concept, like my passion and where we reside in this new ideas of geology, a whole new way of hydrocarbon generation from the MagmaChem perspective. Now mixed with the results of your career. Are you kidding me, dude? Like what you do, the data you provide is real. And that's an approximation of reality. What is real? What is truth? Well, I'll tell you what's true. That's a big fracture. And these faults and these stimulated faults are going in that direction before a reason. That is real. Now, where is the hydrocarbon coming back? How do you make that knowledge economic? Well, our old model couldn't do it, man. That's the bottom effing line. We're not drilling and fracking a pool of oil. There's something else going on. We have the new concept in MagmaChem Research Institute's 50 years of, of unlocking this thing. Now we mix it with your, your ability to do this. The future is absolutely bright. We're running out of time, folks, on this show. I'm not going to lie. Skippo's got a hard stop at noon. I think we officially have to break this into a two-show deal. Are you guys down for that? Is it possible? Absolutely. I am yeah. definitely down for that. I'm definitely down. Like yeah. I definitely over talk, so I'm sorry, but oh, dude. No, oh no, no, that's the thing. I'd love is, to keep I mean... sharing with you guys because I got, I got some like uh, sort of examples. We've kind of talked about like the genesis up until like, I would say like where we got to, um, you know, in 2018. And then I'd love to share with you guys kind of where I, I think, uh, you know, where the industry is going to go and some other like different mousetraps that are being worked on um, and, and how we're going to try and validate that for the industry so that they can trust it. Um, bef- they right. can trust it before yeah. it's sold. That's right, dude. So we got 30 minutes left. Let's call it just, uh, let's call it 25 minutes. So Skip's got five minutes before his call. 25 minutes. Do you want to pull up your slide deck and let's just dive in to what you are doing as a company, as a professional? What is being applied today? What's being asked of you today from the the, the operators? What is it that you're giving them? Uh, 25 minutes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I would say that um, the, the principal... Um, principal thing that like to, to speak to your question, principal things that we're trying to um, provide some learnings and observations um, for our customers are um, looking at well spacing, looking at uh, completion sequencing. So looking at single well ops versus multi well operations and how that creates uh, an impact. Um, looking at limited entry designs. So like that was you know, pretty much the basis of the hydraulic fracture test site number two, um, you know, with, uh, with Anadarko and um, Shell, and the, the Boxwood Wells in Loving County that, uh, you know, got 16 operators all kind of looking at the same thing. We're testing out, you know, nine different limited entry designs and, and trying to understand which of those is best uh, for each specific formation. Wow. And which of those limited entry designs, how they are sensitive to the geomechanical changes that, that dynamically change spatially and temporally. And, and so that's, um, you know, I think that's where the industry's at right now. I, th- I feel like there's some operators that feel more comfortable with the designs that they're going to roll with. But, you know, mm-hmm. from on the ground, you know, if, if we're going to go engage and go look at a new project, like what I'm working on, like, you know, this afternoon after we get off this call, it's breaking apart and an analytical workflow to try to trap out the differences between, you know, five, five limit entry designs, extreme limit entry designs that have slight tweaks to them and try to um, relate that back into something, some learnings that says this is more effective in staying contained in the reservoir versus this one is less effective uh, because it's, it has a higher proclivity to, to migrate towards depleted reservoir. 
Um, and then that final thing that I think is, is also very, very important is trying to get a, a, a handle on depletion. Um, Cause a lot of, you know, we're, we're doing infill spacing on inventories of drilled but uncompleted wells. Many of those uh, inventory of those wells were, as we know it now are too, too closely spaced together, but mm -hmm. you know, can't, you can't move them. <laughs> yeah. Can't move them once they've been drilled. So um, you either have to abandon some of those or you have to go back and try to be a little bit more surgical and understand the effects of depletion more clearly um, in your specific asset and um, to be able to um, maybe augment or, or modify what your original you know, designs look like. Um, so if you want, I can. I want, I want whatever yeah. you're about to do, dude. You don't have to ask that question. <laughs> I want it. Last year and a half has been has been tough. I mean, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's been tough for everybody and a lot of people yeah. away from their their families, away from their friends, and uh, you know, trying to fight your way through like a, a cataclysmic you know downturn in the industry. It's tough. It's tough. It's it's tough, man. But what an honor for us to be in this generation, dude. This is a truly building generation. We talk about the people, the the boomers of, of what came out of World War II and how that happened as a global event. This is a similar thing, man. We we are. It's time to build. And if you're not ready yeah. to work and provide that value, you're gonna sit on the sidelines. It's probably gonna be rough. You gotta get involved. You gotta provide value. It it is our job to work for the next generation. And that's just where we're at, dude. I mean, you said it in reality. That is the reality of it. It is not fun. It is hard. And it takes a lot of time. And I would love to be with my family a lot more. But it is time to build, folks. And that's what we're talking about. Please, doctor us up, Scott. So, I mean, basically what we're looking at here um, is, um, we're, you know, this is taking a solution space for, say, like, you know, an entire pad worth of, of microseismic response. Um, and what we've done here is you've resolved the mechanism. So, you know, whether it's a strike slip, a dip slip, or some type of reverse or normal fault. So you can get that, that information. You can redact it one way um, into this like beach ball type of uh, yeah. space, which is, you know, something that, that again, came out of, of earthquake seismology. Um, a lot of, um, you know, higher end geophysicists, technical people, people that are, you know, petrophysicists or, uh, high-end geologists like yourselves, I mean, this makes intuitive sense, but for a majority of people inside of the asset team, it, it is um, a little tough. So what you want to try and do is leverage, you know, the statistics of, of what you've got here and to look at um, some type of string algorithm, um, you know, that are available with, you know, sort of modern data science techniques where you try to find where these fractures sit and probabilistically given, you know, your, your geological regime, what is that telling you? What is that telling you? Um, is this, is this something that's more likely associated with, you know, the green part down here where you've got a dip slip and you've got something that's, that's slipping on a new fracture or at the other member looking at the blue end up the top, um, you know, is this something strike slip where you're, you're interacting with some type of like natural fracture um, and, and activating that? Or you get into like this middle part here and the red is like, you're might be reactivating some previously stimulated rock. You might be activating some depleted rock or you might be just overlapping stages and it gets, you know, quite complicated, but you know, let me make a quick interruption, dude. I just want to say this because the first slide you pulled up, you're, we're looking at 
not what the hardware and software necessarily is hearing. Your first slide in this presentation is already at a geologic model level. You have a, you have a model that's now telling us an interpretation of what the hardware and software is listening and capturing. We're making interpretations here. And that's a very important point that I wanted to stop and take and get your perspective on. You're talking about a body of rock and a model that is now helping us make this interpretation. This is not step one. This is, this is down the road and built on a lot of data. And so that- yeah. But this is what this is what this is what the clients are like uh, this is what they care about right i mean you want to yeah. try something that's this scattered you know cloud of, of complexity and reduce it down to this you know right. yeah. what's happening which way is the rock yeah. breaking and then you can start answering those questions and relating you know the patterns that you can see in the way that the rock is breaking um and try to bring that back to fracture mechanics so it makes sense and it adds value um you know not just to one person inside of a company but to a group of very, very intelligent individuals that are trying to collaboratively work together and solve a problem. And, mm -hmm. and, and you're the, the, I'd say that's, you know, part of on the services side, what you have to do is you have to try to like really understand what is important to your customers and, and not just make friends with that one or two per, you know, man or, or, or woman who, you know, who brought you in there, but try to listen to everybody that's there and, and make it as applicable as possible. And, I would say this is, um, we're not the only ones that are doing this, but, you know, being able to try to redact it down into something that's visually simple and repeatable where you've got primary colors, red, blue, green, um, and explaining, you know, in a way that it makes sense to you guys intuitively. I mean, this is something, this is like sort of a, you know, I would say part of the, the baseline approach um, of trying to, trying to get some value out of that. Okay. So you got, you got a 2D thing happening here. You either got strike slip, reverse fault, normal fault, but there's rotation in each of these things too. Are you getting, is that the next slide? Cause they're, they're not just saying. Oh, there you oh, go. Oh, read our minds. Of course, because you've got, you know, you've got rotation. So like you've got a, a fracture, right? You've got a, a tensile fracture. You've got this, you know, tensile fracture here. Mm -hmm. And you've got this branching effect. And as you said, like based upon the, the changes in that that stress field in the subsurface, that angle, you know, it uh, you know might start off as something like this, and mm -hmm. then as those effective stresses change, that same you know response you're getting from a you know dipslip event coming off of a tensile fracture, it might rotate 15 degrees. Wow! Yeah. It might rotate 15 degrees this way. Or, yeah. you know, it might start act, interacting with, uh, with a bedding plane and it might be completely, you know, horizontal. <laughs> Sigma one is north-south. Sigma three is tensile. It's the really, go back to that image real quick. I got, I got a question for you. That image on the left that you were just manipulating with the grain as you were, uh, I was tracking what you were saying. Now I'm looking at yeah. the whole image at, at, without the green thing right now. You have tension happening east-west on the screen, compression north-south. It's opening. What are those red? Are those conjugate fracture? Like no, that's what that's what the traditional microseismic. That's what it is. Those see that's a hypersphere, yeah. and then you've how got repeatable. How, is, how, how repeatable? Sorry to interrupt, man. How, how repeatable is the red fractures coming off the tensile fracture? It's, it's pretty repeatable. I mean, if you, wow. if you do all the baseline processing pretty well, you should be able to trap out um, the differences. That, but again, like the nuances there and the complexity there is, is understanding 
how much, um, you know, because of the changes in the stresses, how much dynamically that, you know, that branching effect right. that, you know, like this I, or like this. That's the tough part. What you're talking about, dude, is it's happening in the reservoir scale. Well, it's happening at the pore scale in a similar way. It's happening also at the regional scale in the geologic model that is allowing your interpretations to happen. The way that tensile fracture is taking place and the way those right L shears and those that very predicted structural effect from that main tensile crack that is happening at all scales. Yeah. And, and well, here's the other thing too. And then it like, kind of like Scott was saying is your reservoir changes like the essentially like that cohesive strength within the, the rock unit itself is going to change as well. Right. If you're something that's, you know, a little bit softer, right. It like when you're like working in like more clay, that's not as consolidated versus when you're working in something that's stand versus when you're working in, you know, a dolomite or a lime, those, those angles are going to change. Uh, and that's, and that's, and the other thing that I'm thinking of is as those fractures are breaking off the tensile fractures. I mean, I mean, Scott, you definitely know way more about this than I would, but I'm just kind of thinking hypothetically right now, if those fractures begin to initiate and open, then they're going to be breaking again at that, at a similar angle. And could you technically, oh man, I'm. And that's I'm the not- hard part. And that's the, yeah. and that's the hard part with the bubble map is having those mixed mode of those failures and trying yeah. Again, relate them back down to what you really want. You want to know where that fluid and where that propent's gone. And, and because of all of that complexity, that's very, very difficult with the conventional mouse trap of even doing this like perfectly. It's very difficult to do that because of exactly yeah. the mixed, mixed mode, mixed mechanism where people, they want to see this big bi-wing trend of all green events coming out, you know, that are... <laughs> and then branching into red and, and, and blue. And it just doesn't look like that. Even yeah. if you process it perfectly, it's so complicated and it's really right. tough. Um, you know, so it's just tough to answer that question, to be honest with you. Yeah, dude. See trends. Right, um, yeah, and with the right geologic model, you are seeing where the magic is happening. And I'm going to argue that the magic is happening where you have tension. If we can create tension just like surface interfacial tension. That's where the magic happens. You're manipulating the, the tension in the system. When the rock was put there in the first place, what's it under? Tension. We talked about Gawar. If you haven't seen this, Gawar is made in this massive left lateral strike slip tension, and it's built from tip to tip on this struck big structural event that happens. The guar is sitting tip to tip between a structural envelope that created tension. I'm going to predict, and I haven't done this, I'm going to predict, you do Rydell, you do those red marks coming off of the main tension sitting in guar, and I'll bet you you're going to find yourself mapping your way into high productive zones, and it's going to be off the tension of those things. Tension is what we want. Tension is the, is the, is the juice. That's, that's it. That's the magic. Oh yeah. <laughs> well done, Troy. Very Get good. Yeah. Please, please continue. Forward. Comfortable okay. pause. So, I mean, traditionally, like, there's a, I mean, another um, derivative product. So once you, once you've built that sort of triangle plot of the different mechanisms, you can, you can group them, and you can take like, you know. 50, 100,000 events with a similar type of, of, uh, of mechanism of failure, and you can invert for um, effective stresses. So that's what we're, we're looking at here is you can generate a more circle um, so you can understand 
try to understand at what point that rock is going to exceed its failure criterion and, and, yeah. and understand the orientations and the relative magnitudes of your sigma one, sigma two, sigma three stresses. And then if we juxtapose the left image versus the right image, we're looking at on the left-hand side, um, interactions with natural fractures and what that um, stress regime looks like and the orientations and the magnitudes of those, those three principal stresses. And then we can see that there is a quite a dramatic difference where there's a complete rotation um, when uh, we're looking at induced fractures. So that would be like something oh. along where you're, you know, you're pumping and you're, you're having that, that slip coming off of, um, off of new rock. And that's, this is another way where you have to be able to, you know, very reliably and carefully surgically group these events together to get a, a statistically significant stable solution where you can invert, but you can invert for um, the complete stress tensor. And that obviously has, has some, has some value. And you can look at how these stresses rotate as you, um, for example, maybe breach through uh, a frac barrier or lithological barrier that you want to contain one reservoir between the other. Uh, you can certainly use this to trap out the effects of depletion because as we move fluid and sand into a previously depleted lower pressure part of the reservoir, those stresses, you know, they change dramatically. And that's probably the, the easiest way to trap out that, that effective depletion, um, you know, today for microseismic is, is not just looking at the bubble maps, looking at the source mechanisms, but taking those together and looking at the spatial temporal expense of those and seeing how those effective stresses change over time. Uh, side to by side, natural fractures, induced fractures. Tell me which one has the greater uh, possibility for tension out of all those events, left and right. Which, which one has better tension specifically well that's that's a loaded question right because that just depends on where you are in relation to your fault so right so i mean if, if you're like if you're like if you're in a if you're in a, if you're in a strike slip regime right and like you're going around a bend right depend if it's left lateral strike slip and like you know we have like a classic restraining bend kind of like this and now we're getting transpression right obviously there's going to be a ton of tension but the fracture net, that open fracture network that's there is going to have a different orientation if opposed to, let's say the bend was to go another way and we're opening this way, right? Those fractures are going to initiate in a different orientation to that. And I mean, you know, I have, I mean, there's, I have theories in my own head on where you'd find more oil in both of those regimes in like both those natural fracture regimes. But uh, yeah, I'm going to keep that so to I myself. Think, I think like going back to my original, like, um, you know, long-winded diatribe of like where, the tradition, this is what I would still consider like traditional microseismic deliverables that, that you would you would expect to get from a high quality product. Um, where this really misses the mark in addressing that question, Troy, is that we're still characterizing the shear fractures that are radiating off of the tip or interacting with oh. fractured depleted rocks. So it's a proxy to get back. You want to know where you have that maximum tension we can't see that. We can't necessarily trap that with, with this workflow. We can, we can see that there is a change in the geomechanical regime. This is something that would, you know, pair uh, and marry very well with looking at like, you know, distributed uh, acoustic sensing that's run, you know, permanently or off a wireline where you're looking at crosswell strain. And, you know, as that, you know, fracture comes across and excites that fiber, you get that, you know, fracture driven interaction there. And 
that's where you get that tensile loading and that hit there. And you can corroborate, use this to help corroborate the migration from you know where you're stimulating to where that fiber measurement is. Because the fiber is a point source measurement. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really a very, very sensitive strain gauge that you have down hole. Um, it, you know, even with the best boxes that are out there right now, it's, it's not still equivalent to the geophone. It's a, you know, omnidirectional measurement. So, I mean, there is wow. value to get, you know, the geophysical side out of it. And that's, that's one of the things where I think the industry is going to go here. Wow. You know, wow. people are working very hard to kind of crack that nut, but, you know, really Troy, I think, you know, let me keep going here. A couple more slides here. I think I'm gonna oh, be yeah. start showing you some of what I would call them, the magic of what, what, I, what I've been working on uh, very hard for, you know, since again, this is something that's, I started working on this with, uh, with a postdoc student uh, from Search Shapiro's department named Anton Reshetnikov in 2013. And it has taken, you know, a huge amount of time and effort to get this, this imaging technology, um, you know, into something that's, that's a satisfactory form. I and mean, if you recall when, again, we did this for you at, uh, at Trey, and that was, I think I was one of the first ones where we really made some significant upgrades and you could really see that we imaged those planar fractures coming off of uh, the wellbore, but we also were able to image those fluid filled um, natural fractures as well for you that set off site. So it was the first thing I think you can, you can see where you're, you're starting to try to take an orthogonal view of what, what's happening down there. And really it's, it's saying like, okay, if we use the, the paradigm we've got up here on this screen, we've got conventional reflection seismic imaging that's done from the surface. You've got a vibrosized truck, you've got a bunch of dynamite shots, and you're going to impart uh, that energy into the reservoir and hit it. And it's going to bounce back to your receivers at the surface. And you're using that to try to trap out, you know, where am I, um, what's the structure look like? What are my formation properties? I can mm -hmm. this and look at the, try to tease out the elastic properties and the geomechanical properties. But at the essence, what we're doing is we're using a repeatable compressional, typically a compressional uh, source at the surface and use that to scan the reservoir. So what are we doing here that's, that's, that's interesting is we're using the microseismic events downhole as a source and looking for the information that comes after that first arriving event, because those events, they, they happen and they bounce off of the formation. They bounce off of the fluid filled fractures. They bounce off of natural fractures and they bounce off of prop and filled fractures and the way that they bounce and the energy and the information that they contain there is, is really exciting uh, for me in, in, in what we might be able to do to extend the information value from conventional microseismic. Obviously, the big first, you know, the first thing is that there's a huge amount of, of differences geophysically from what you're doing with a downhole using an, a microseismic event vis-a-vis -vis the surface. Um, you've got a very complicated radiation pattern, right? You've got a compressional wave and a shear wave that are both reflecting. Compressional waves and shear waves don't respond the same way to fluid. Wow on the same way to fluid or sand, right? Because there's different density properties. Yeah. All that stuff I showed you before and kind of glossed over and said like, you know, being able to reliably, you know, resolve the source mechanisms and to be able to classify them and understand the way that that, that rock is radiating. That's what you have to be able to get to just to start to be able to set the table to do this because you have to normalize all of these different sources and understand 
the way that that energy is is bouncing and then take the take that energy in an appropriate way and stack it together so that you can start to image but it's really really exciting because you know basically from like a first principles basis it is absolute that you know a fluid filled fracture is going to be more reflective so if you have a sound wave that's transmitting through a block of rock from one side of my hand to the other side of my hand it's going to travel through and you know, if there's slight discontinuities or little fractures in the, there inside of like the, uh, the facies, you might get the subtle reflection that you can, you can tease out there. If I have a fluid filled fracture in the middle of that, it acts like a mirror and it's going to transmit part of that coda through that fluid filled fracture and part of it's going to bounce back. And that's the basic premise of what we're doing. And, you know, if you contrast this, um, you know, micro seismic, what you're trying to get out of that and what the comparative value is between microseismic of what I call conductive fracture imaging is where you're trying to image these fluid and propent laden conductive fractures um, and trap those. Um, the, the real first thing is looking at the accuracy of the measurements. So you've got you know, either geophones at the surface or you've got geophones downhole that sit a long way away from where that little dot is happening. Um, closer, sometimes you're further away. Sometimes you have multiple points of measurement, but there's always some uncertainty there. So there's an uncertainty envelope. And because you only have, you only have one look, you only have one trace, one waveform to try to localize that event, getting that depth down to the cluster level is, is, is really, is really tough. I mean, you can, you can quantify that. And I would say at best, you know, 25 feet of, of depth and, and overall accuracy is, is outstanding. It, it really is. Um, the thing that we benefit from this technique is because that mirror, that fluid filled or that fluid propent filled fracture or that natural fracture, it's there. It's there for a period of time. It's growing and it's consistent. It may leak off and it may close in on itself, but let's just suppose that it stays open. So I've got, you know, my events, I've got, I pumped my first stage and I've got a fluid filled fracture here. I've got stage two. It stays open. It bounces off. I've got stage three going to bounce off that stage four stage five stage six stage seven and i can see these maybe subtle changes in the way that that fracture might have leaked off partially closed wow. itself that's telling me some information about leak off uh oh. discharge um you can understand about how the rock is relaxing back in itself and back to that point there that's that tensile point that's where you have the most tension is where you've that open conductive fracture with aperture where the earth is trying to squeeze and push it back you know, and, and, and into its into its equilibrium state. And the reason why you can get more accuracy with this is because you've got tens or hundreds or thousands of events that are all going to repeatedly reflect off of that surface. And you can use that to create these four-dimensional spatial and temporal images of where you've got conductive fractures. You can get the geometry out. You can start looking at fluid allocation. You can start looking at which of those clusters are more efficient, which of them take fluid during the stimulation, which of them don't take fluid after the stimulation because they've leaked off. Um, really cool. Really, really cool stuff. That is freaking incredible. So for a guy like, uh, so let's just say from, you know, the completion of the frack to, you know, getting this data in house and interpreting this data, when would you be able to expect like a deliverable on something like, you know, this conductive fracture imaging? 
so i mean like we're we're still like a humble shop um you know everything's being financed out of out of uh you know partnership uh, out of our own it's um i would say we've we've gone you know when we first started looking at this um it would take two months to look at one well um mm -hmm. you know once we've got the the baseline piece dialed in probably looking at like two weeks to do an entire pad of wells um, awesome you know as we as we hopefully grow and evolve and take in some take in some financing and have more resources to do engineering yes this could become something that you could you could do and actually have inside of that data van on the frac pad and use this as a diagnostic you know kind of like you know like if you were making an image of your body and be able to see how fast that turnaround is you know from like, you know on your brain but you know oh lie to you guys i mean we're not we're, we're not there yet to do this yeah. time is is, is really is, is tough yeah no, no no and that's and that's what i wanted to know right because and then the, you know like the, like you said this is this is something understanding this is i feel like very very crucial in understanding you know what's actually going on in that reservoir for yeah. development purposes right exactly. so you so, I mean, when, yeah so when you start to you know plan out you know how we're going to drill out this asset you know, getting this information back would be vital, right? Understanding, hey, rocks, rock in this reservoir type A break like this. This is when they leak off. These are the orientations of those fractures based on, you know, what we're seeing. I, I, this is, this is awesome, Scott. This is, I want to say other yeah. words, but keeping it PG for the folks. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so then I just want to emphasize here again, like going back to again, like the point that you made there of, of trying to look at like just a very basic, Fracture mechanics, and I think um, this comes from Craig Sapola and Norm Wapinski from an SP paper that I haven't appropriately annotated here that I'll have to correct with you post factum um, to be respectful of uh, my elders who have uh, done a phenomenal job of taking us to this point here. But you know, as I said before, you know we're look whoops we're looking you know trying to juxtapose if that gray bar there, looking at gun barrel view of that tensile fluid prop and fill fracture. That's and that green thing that's coming off the side of it there. That's what we were looking at before with the conventional, you know, understanding of moment tensor inversion, source characterization for microseismic. And what we're trying to do here with the conductive fracture imaging is actually image spatially and temporally how that tensile fracture, which is that opening motion, that tensile motion is, is you know, not something that's going to generate a micro seismic event and use the you know use the the basically the shear fractures and the energy that they release to image this part of it here mm -hmm. show you an example here this is uh delaware basin example left hand side is a traditional you know micro seismic and you can see the geophones here you've got one array of geophones here that's vertical another vertical over here and this uh, split array here the horizontals and you can see, I mean, you've got a, a trend with uh, with SH Max. We've colored it um, based upon uh, the different completion design. They're testing out different fluid systems here. And then just to give you a sense of scale, so this is looking at a map view uh, from the Toyota heel. This is a one-mile lateral. Then okay. on our side, that's where you're looking at is the imaging. Um, so we've got the red, red fractures, um, which I would put into one group. And the blue fractures, which come in at a completely different in, in azimuth, those are the natural fractures that you've that you've lit up. Mm. You know, and if maybe I could be a little bit more prepared because I actually got some interesting data. We've got like uh, an offset 
pressure monitoring and a plug over here. And you can, you can actually see that there is a, a, a connection where you can see these images, where you can see these, these conductive fractures hitting and exciting that, that wellbore that's acting like a tuning fork, you can see that pressure response. You can see that fracture-driven interaction. And as you hit it more and pump it full of more fluid and hit it harder, you can see that that pore fluid pressure is actually getting elevated uh, because it's depleted reservoir. And you can see that there is a dramatic point here where we suddenly start to activate these blue natural fractures. Yep you have enough elevated pore fluid pressure in the system now to activate those. Wow. You know, again, so whether or not those are going to, again, remain open and conductive post factum and contribute to production, that's a, you know, something that you need a, you know, a team of individuals to, to look at and you need other measurements to, to quantify it, but, you know, starting to, you know, look at what you can, what you can take away from this rather than just a, a bubble map and, and sort of a qualitative sense of what the volume of the reservoir is, you can start to look at stimulated surface area. That's right. To look down to the cluster level and see which of those were effective or not. And then you can take a holistic approach and look at, you know, offset depletion and how much fluid that, that depleted reservoir took for that frac to be more symmetrical and for it to open up more surface area in other pre-existing failure um, Fairly points, um, you know, which will be the natural fractures there. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's call it a show. Part one, Scott Taylor. Skippo, you got to jump, right? Yeah, I got to hop off right now. Part but- one, Scott Taylor coming to an end. I love where it's at because what I want to dive into first in this part two is the pitfalls and the... Assault. Scott, it was a, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Skip. Later, yeah. Skippo. Later, T-Roy. See you round two. Wear the same shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Scott. Take care, guys. No, no, no. Real quick, Scott. We're going to we're going to wrap this up. I want to get, get behind your ears a little bit and get some motivation for you on what we want to do with the rest of the drill down and completion. And, and then we'll, we'll finish this show. Uh, the pitfalls and what we're talking about, the assumptions that were being made, you know, what is it that's really challenging to a geophysicist, to the geologist, in your opinion, in your experience when they see this? And I'm looking at this going, OK. I either have production coming from the, the blue or the red, which one's giving me my attention. That's where I want to focus on the perfs. That's where I really want to focus on the production coming back from this event. Uh, that's my opinion. I want to hear what you see and what you hear when, when you have conversations in real life with people, what are they paying attention to? What are they asking for? Um, that's, that's where is I want to actually, go. is this actually fucking real? Is this we <laughs> fucking do this? That's it. You're telling yeah. me you can image a fucking like eight, like you know, tiny little fluid filled fracture out like a mile. Are you kidding me? Yep. So a huge amount of skepticism. And so that's that's what that's back to what, what I'm like working on right now, which is reprocessing the hydraulic fracture test site two data set where you've got permanent fiber uh in two wells and a vertical and a horizontal. Um, you've got uh, recovered core where they drilled through either side and they, they've logged where the fractures and where the sand went through the reservoir. Um, and you've got time-lapse uh, production flowback monitoring from that fiber as well. So you can determine quantitatively, line up those three external data points and show, okay, what's our agreement with what they recovered from the core? If we say we can determine where the fluid filled and proper fill fractures are, what agreement do we have with the recovered core? You can't argue with that shit, man. You can't. And it's, it, it, that's why it's such a beautiful data set. The other thing too is we get down to the cluster level efficiency. Okay, so you've got that fiber and that box with 4H there. And uh, 
it's telling you during the stimulation, you can see which of those clusters are active and, and what time. And we can try to match up our results of where we think we've got cluster efficiency that are conductive, look at fluid symmetry, line that up with the fiber. And, and that's a second piece where we can say we're within 60% or 70% or maybe even 80% of that and, and, and take that to the bank and, and be able to come up with some data to get over those assumptions and pitfalls that we've had in the past of overselling before you're ready to roll. Uh, so we've actually been very, very humble and very selective and picked and chosen who we worked with um, in this gestation period to get to this point here where we can you know, line up our results. We've, we've done some work before that looks pretty promising, but uh, you know, once we've, once we've got this, uh, you know, this result with HFTS2 and we can actually go out there and say, you know, we're within this percentage of reality, then we're going to put the pedal to the metal, right? Because that's what people want. They want to know what can the measurement tell me information value and what are the limitations? Every fucking, every, every measurement that we make on these reservoirs has a limitation. There's a resolution, and if you don't account for that and find a way to be able to, you know, numerically state what your level of uncertainty is, then no one's going to, you're never going to be repeatable. You're never going to be something that, that is trustworthy across the entire industry. And you're just stuck in that quagmire of assumptions and pitfalls and circular loops. Of how do I prove this? How do I verify this? So we had to take the onus on ourselves to go and prove it to ourselves with someone else yeah. in a way that's almost irrefutable, I would argue. That's right. That's right. I would argue that that's where a lot of thing is at. That's a lot of little niches in the industry. I feel like are at, we've gone through this amazing, you know, fight to say, no, 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 this, this has a seat at the table. I believe in it. I know this is working. And now we got to find the right people who are giving us the chance to merge these ideas, build something together. It's not, no, not any one person is getting through this. We are, we are, in, we are forced to integrate in this industry right now. And I think it's creating a credible amount of value Dude, I can't wait to share more stuff about what we're developing at PBE. Let's end the show here. We're going to have part two, Scott Taylor, uh, as soon as you're available to do it again. And we're going to finish the drill down, go into completion. And uh, and I don't even know how this is going to go, but dude, we're going to record an intro. We're going to actually do this with you. But man, we're, there's so much developing right now in the business. PBE is getting hit with so many interesting stories that need to be told. And it's all integrating, man, naturally. I'm not making this. PBE is not forcing any of this to happen it's literally coming and it's right now and it's so fascinating man i think there's so much opportunity to raise a lot of money behind this a lot of and a lot of uh resources are going to go into this because it's it's it works it's logical it's what we need and we believe that that's this is exactly where the industry is going to go and and we're going to respond to this pressure so are you ready for this journey man Man, Scott Taylor, yesterday was outstanding, dude. I'm glad we were able to get back on these microphones mm -hmm. this soon and just keep going, keep flowing. It feels like I just took a nap and we're right back in it. <laughs> yeah. Changed our shirts, maybe. By the way, do you have a little, what is that symbol on your Magnacam shirt? Is that like D uh, Denver, the last dinosaur? <laughs> this is uh yeah dinosaur he's he's spooked out this comes from stan Key's thesis from 1976 he's freaked out when the subduction goes steep and volcanism starts with the tectonic plates and what was happening in western united states he's like oh shit i gotta go so his spots are coming off and he's he's taking off running that's hilarious Nice, dude. That's what this show's all about, man. So let's, we talked about it a little bit at the end. Uh, Skips was outside of that conversation as he took his call. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're talking about, 
what your company is doing specifically, how you know, you're integrating with these operators, what are they asking for? What are the questions that we're, we're really chasing down in the Permian base? And how does MicroSeismic help us answer some of these questions, if not all of these questions? Okay. Yeah, so um, you've disabled my uh, screen ah, capabilities. Ah, come on, Troy. Okay, so what, what you try to do, like I was saying this yesterday, I got some better visual cues here to kind of roll through some of the, you know, some of the things that we would be doing. Um, is The first thing is, is sitting with the customer and, and looking at, you know, what is the design criteria? What is, what is the testing uh, that's being done, right? I mean, if anybody's going to spend extra money, whether it's on, you know, tracers or it's on um, fiber optic, uh, crosswell strain, uh, microseismic, any of the or offset pressure monitoring, um, you know, there's a, there's some diagnostic tests or te a group of tests that are being, um, want to be analyzed and diagnosed. And the, you know, and one of the more common ones right now, uh, you know, that's been done on the hydraulic fracture test site number two. Um, and I'd say like broadly, it's still being optimized and experimented upon in both the Delaware and the Midland basins right now is looking at different um, perforation uh, cluster design. So looking at different limited entry designs, basically. Um, so, you know, from a service standpoint, you know, what we would do is, you know, kind of dissect this, uh, look at the, you know, look at the perf design sheets beforehand, take the complete design the data set and break it up into these, these different logical groups. And so, you know, this project here, you've got a base design that would be like what the operator has been rolling with, um, you know, kind of as their standard operating procedure in factory mode. And then they're trying out extreme limited entry, um, looking at limited entry with diversion, and then looking at tight clusters with a shorter stage line. So, I mean, kind of like just you know, globally looking at some of the, the common variables that are being experimented with right now. Is that kind of, sorry to, to interrupt, but uh, are we talking about drilling shorter laterals and getting? No. Okay, what are we talking about? about? Just, we're just modifying like, so the stage, um, really the, the variables that you can do. So you look from plug to plug, that's your stage length. So like some, there's experimentation going on with changing that stage length, either increasing it, you know, obviously if you've got a longer stage length, it's more cost-effective operationally. However, it's very difficult to generate. Um, uh, it's typically very difficult to generate symmetry of fluid and profit allocation when you've got a, a stage length that's so long. Yeah. Think about um, just like, the, again, the in-situ stresses uh, and the rock properties that are driving that. It's much easier for the fluid to go into that first cluster that's kind of more towards the heel and start not only like, is it easier like physically, but then you also have erosion, right? Because as soon as you start putting sand down there, it's like sandblasting. So those perf clusters at sometimes at the, at the, at the very heelward side of a longer stage, they'll go from say, you know, 0.4 to like, you know, 0.45 or 0.5 or something like that. Or like they'll erode like quite significantly as wow. at that process of, of, of sort of asymmetry of fluid and propane distribution gets worse and worse and worse. Um, so there's some, you know, quite a bit of experimentation trying to look at, you know, um, <clears throat> changing the, uh, the phasing, the number of, 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 per cluster and um you know optimizing the spacing between those those you know discretized um clusters you know where you're running the guns into the well 
Um, you know, some people um, also looking at, you know, near field diversion, you know, to try to, you know, look at, you know, sort of real time response, pressure response and use some type of diversion to try to help. Basically what it does is it tries to help um, open up more of the perforation clusters that are, that are not taking fluid and break down uh, and generate more symmetry. So wow. going back to what I showed you yesterday, I generated, I just extracted some rose plots from, from a historical project. And, you know, this is the type of um, analysis that you would hope to be able to get from like a classical moment tensor inversion. So these are looking at azimuth plots um, or rose plots. So aggregated probably, you know, mm -hmm. stages um, for each of these groups together that were, you know, that were conducted over a pad. And what you can see here is that you're trying to look for trends and then, you know, see what, what you're, what you're actually getting here. So we can see here that there's, you know, kind of in this base design, there's a green group and a red group, and they've, they've got, you know, very quite ordered structure. Um, we've got the extreme limited entry group. We've got this third gold group that's going north south. So the key thing there is that the shear fractures are, are kind of breaking apart with a different response that you can correlate back to um, that cluster design. And then finally with diversion, it's got a, you know, uniquely much more, you know, exotic, I would say, or more complicated response. So I just want to drill down on that and kind of build upon what I was, one of the things I was touching upon about the pitfalls of like, you know, you want to do this independently, right? You want to do this as a service company independently, generate these voters plots and then show it to the customer and say, okay, do we have anything else, you know, in your, in your data lab um, on this, on this package um, that we can go back and, and help to wrap into an interpretation in this project, you know, we had a, um, you know, some geomechanical analysis from, from the customer. So you've got, um, SH max is, is listed as blue. And then we've got our tensile fractures, breakout fractures here in the red, and you can see it lines up really well. So you're like, okay, so this is my SH max. This is my, you know, drilling induced fractures that are opening up there. And then the piece of information they had here was the core. And that's where you can start to see trace. Is that a, is that a sidewall or is that whole core? Uh, it's whole core. Whole core. Okay. Um, I don't really remember. This is from like probably the well, whole core. Yeah. You're looking down the, yeah, this is looking like, it's like, like this. So you yeah. just, yeah. So basically the, it's a naturally fractured area and you can see that you start to pick some of those up here, but I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's the type of, of like independent validation that I would say is, is required. And you've got to be disciplined because, you know, you don't want to try and get all of this beforehand because if you, you know, if you take this too early in the process before you've delivered your results, then there's always going to be some healthy skepticism that you kind of got the answer and then tuned your results to make sure, you know, to fit the answer that everybody was expecting. So, um, so in terms of like other deliverables, you know, once we've, we've done that um, imaging, um, what we will do is on a stage level or on that logical group analysis, take a look at, at fluid allocation um, and look at that first. This is a gun barrel view. So you're looking uh, transverse west and transverse east of the well, and you'll come up with a percentage so you can see how symmetrical the fluid distribution is. Um, the 62% uh, fluid allocation going east of the well in this particular case is primarily driven because of depletion. So you get a, a sense of like whether or not there's a interference with a, you know, a, a parent well or a primary well, however you term the nomenclature there. So there's some value there. And then similarly, we also look at, you know, look at fluid um, and prop and allocation, try to make that estimate, um, whether it was above or below um, the, uh, the center point of the well. <clears throat> Is that typical reactions? They, they kind of no. go down and out? No, 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 absolutely not. Go up and out. Typically up. Like I don't, okay. 
you really can't say typical. I mean, this is it's it's so dependent upon like the the yeah, there's a frack barrier right above that thing, or just what the sequencing is as well, Skip. Or right, yeah. because, I mean, if you've already completed a well that's in a lower formation and it's depleted, then that's where the fluid wants to go. Uh, okay. Have you know in, in most I would say in typically in you know Midland or Delaware Basin. If you don't have that depletion effect, I mean, they're going to want to grow up, right? They're going to want to. So Delaware, like, you know, completing like a wolf camp X, Y or whatever, it's going to want to go up into that sands, you know, eventually if you, if you pumped it too much, right? On a one mile by one mile block of wolf camp, Permian Basin, Delaware Basin side, what's the connectivity in your opinion? Like it's a fresh block, one horizon, you put one well bore in there, and then you go on the other side of the mile, put another well bore in there. Is there guaranteed connection between those two wells? No, I wouldn't say guaranteed, um, but you certainly need to, to understand um, how far you're, 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 you're actually pushing fluid. Um, and when you get that hydraulic link, you know, it, it's definitely, definitely a very uh, challenging problem that you have to no. be careful of. We're going to skip up. Oh, I was going to say it's pretty, it's, it's pretty interesting now that, well, that, that concept that Scott is talking about as far as, you know, how, you know, the propin is going to want to go where it's been depressurized more or less. So when you're, you know, developing, you know, reservoir, like a stacked reservoir, right? So if you drill wolf can't be well, and then let's say you're drilling a bone spring well, you might want to drill a little higher, right? Knowing that the majority of that propin is going to be going down towards that wolf can't be well. You know what I mean? As far as, you know, just development is being concerned, but. Yes. And I think that's also like where the, like looking at the entry designs as well is like, you know, just having done enough, you can see that there's a, a definite measurable response where some, um, some of those cluster designs will help to contain a majority of that um, fluid and propent more closely uh, in a transverse sense um, and in a height sense to the well, whereas others will allow, you know, a predominant fracture to grow uh, out and it will run, you know, in, a, in quite a dramatic sense. Yeah. So then the other, other part of it, I was sort of alluding to, and I dug up this video, this is um, Delaware Basin example, um, bones, and you can see this little purple or I guess purple egg uh, over there. That's a primary parent well that had been on production for about 18 months. And you can see this single stage here is growing out and starting to interact it. But the, the thing is like, you know, I kind of showed some more simplified um, views of, of sort of what the output of from this, this, uh, this approach is, but, you know, you can, you can get pretty, pretty into it, man. Um, you know, you can define like, like I have in this case, a single stage with like a 2 million triangulated mesh. And so that gives you the ability to not only get um, a fracture half length, fracture height, but also the aperture as well. And that's, that's really important. And I think the other cool part here is you can start to, because you have this volumetric estimate, um, you can start to allocate, you know, fluid and propent in terms of like whether you're east or west or upper yeah. and, and start to take a look really at the effects of leak off. So there's a huge amount of synergy with, um, you know, some of the gaps or the, the, the most challenging aspects of, you know, fracture modeling and reservoir modeling to understand these physical processes. And I really think as we, as we validate this technology and get, get this more out and broadly into the community, um, I think that that's ultimately where, you know, there'll be quite a bit of um, quite a bit of value uh, to, to work in, in, a, in an integrated workflow with with what other very, very smart people are doing and just basically helping them 
to trap some of the variables with you know lower error bar bars and, and better constraints. So I mean, like this is really a summary. I think at, at this time, um, you know, I think we've proven to ourselves we can we can extract a, a fracture half length and XF east and west. The height um, we can estimate fracture aperture if we do what's called a true uh, true amplitude imaging um, of of this uh, of these reflections. We can look at fluid allocation up and down and left and right, uh, and then like speaking directly to looking at different limited entry designs, we look at efficiency. So you're trying to normalize all of those different designs on a zero to one scale and uh, relatively rank them of how efficient they are. And you know, really the term efficiency is, are you activating all of the clusters in your design? Is the fluid symmetrical? And is there a bias, like predominantly towards the toe or the heelward side of it, that would give you an indication that it's a less efficient design because a majority of your fluid and propant might be getting thieved out, uh, you know, towards the, the heelward part of that, that stage. Then finally here, like looking at, like I showed you before, um, look fluid leaking off into the formation. And that's obviously something that's, that's very challenging right now to calibrate with, um, you know, with most, most fracture models um, across the board. And then um, the other thing that we can generate is looking at fracture growth curves. So you can look at the distribution of, of fluid into the reservoir um, as a function of time or a function of volume or a function of propant that's delivered. And you can get some interesting information from that. So then another, and just to drill down to the, the cluster efficiency and kind of contrast some of the things that we talked to yesterday of contrasting and juxtaposing what would be a you know, traditional micro seismic deliverable versus um, sort of where you know, this, this imaging technology is, is taking us. This is a, an example here where they're testing out a high density versus a low density um, limited entry design. So changing the, the number of clusters that are being isolated and, and in pumped through on a, on a single state. Uh, so you can see here, like probably just to give you a sense of scale um, over here, this is about 33 feet um, in, between, ah, yeah. sorry, in between those. So we're zoomed in really close to the wellbore and that's for a specific purpose. So now I've overlaid the, the micro seismic. Um, Beautiful. And you Beautiful. See, it's nice. I mean, you get you, <laughs> the shear fractures are going. You can see that we're generating a lot, lot of a uh, lot of activity. And, you know, you can see that they're clusterized well together and that there's some trends you can get there. But you know, really speaking to what the engineers want, um, which is a, you know, an actual qualitative or quantitative measure of the completion cluster efficiency. You can't, you can't offer that with this bubble. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a realistic outcome. You can make approximations, but I would argue vehemently that it's, it would be an overselling and it would be a pitfall. If you would be claiming that you can generate, generate that type of quantitative data. However, if we mute that, and we look at just the, um, the imaging results, you can see that we've gotten down to the resolution where you can see these fluid field fractures post-factum. So after the stage um, has, has terminated, you can see that these specific clusters that remained conductive with, with the formation. So you can really get down to that, that question of, of symmetry, um, of respective bias, and then ultimately like which of, which of those designs is more efficient. So it's, it's really cool. Then the other thing, obviously, that's, you know, it's a very um, inexpensive, uh, low risk diagnostic measurement is offset pressure monitoring. So that can be done, um, you know, surface surface casing pressure on an offset uh, well that's either a duck or um, um, one of the you know primary wells that was already on production that um, it could be used. Um, when we're running 
geophones down hole or in, into a well, sometimes uh, we have to isolate um, the open perforations with a, with a plug. And often you can get very inexpensively a downhole pressure gauge. And that's what we're looking at here at the top. You can see that we've got um, you know, a pressure gauge and you can see that that pressure is rising as a function of the, the, number, the duration of the completion, which you can see here on the, the time axis here on the bottom. And um, um, what you're noticing is a pretty typical response uh, from a, a primary parent well that's been depleted, where you can see these, this increasing overall um, pore fluid pressure. And you can see that these, you've got these like different magnitudes and different time periods where you've got these, um, what are called fracture-driven interactions or frack hits um, is kind of like more of the colloquial term. Um, and basically what you're looking at here is the effects that you've got a, you know, a reservoir that's depleted down to, you know, just over a thousand PSI. So it's well below its version reservoir pressure. And you know, at stage four, where you can see that red star there is where we first made connection. And that becomes the path of least resistance. You've got, you know, a near well bore that's being pressurized and stimulated with high pressure fluid and sand. And it wants to go to the path of least resistance, which is that depleted reservoir. And you can see that that parrot well um, is sucking that fluid, drinking and drinking and drinking, and it's getting hit and it's getting hit in a more severe way at stage seven and 15 and 19 and 20. Um, and it wants to recharge. It wants to take all that fluid and steal it. Uh, so you can see that, you know, the results that we've interpreted down here with the imaging shows a, a very asymmetrical distribution of fluid where it predominantly wants to go north uh, towards that, that parent well until the point uh, around stage 19 where it seems to get closer to that poor fluid pressure is elevated to the point where it's kind of it's doing two things. You can see that towards the sort of back third there, you've got more symmetry in the fluid and fracture distribution because the parent well has kind of gotten back closer to its its happy uh, virgin state. And then we've also induced enough pressure into the system to cause those natural fractures to open up and be conductive as well. And as I said yesterday, whether or not those are something that's gonna be contributive uh, to production or something that's going to be um, just a waste and it's gonna close in on itself is really where you have to work with your clients and understand the geomechanics and local stresses and you know get a I got a question on that. I got some some rabbit holes to get into. First of all, is the the well that's taken in the pressure from the new stimulation is that shut in or are they allow that's shut in? So they press they close so the they well. Pulled, they pulled the tubing, right? Pulled the tubing, set a, a a plug down here, and then we run our ran our geophones in here. So the geophones are these little green discs that sit down here. So that that parent well, uh, they had to bring a workover rig, right, and pull that tubing out and, uh, and prepare it so that we could use it as a, as a well of opportunity for doing the monitoring. The other question I have is, <clears throat> any of the operators that you're working with, is it an overall negative thing to have frack kits or a positive thing to have frack kits? So that's where you get into, like, more of a, a detailed um, analysis of pressure and... You know, there's there basically again, it's it's <laughs> it's a complicated answer. So, in some cases, you can have um, you know direct fluid communication where you can observe that that pressure hit that's showing that you've got a hydraulic link and connecting those two wells, and then you have to really look at the the intensity and the magnitude of that pressure response. So, some cases you'll see like a very humble you know 
delta pressure value that we indicated with that FDI. And that's probably benign, not really going to do anything. Um, in other cases, you know, you can see, you know, a thousand PSI, you know, pressure bump. Um, like you can see here from stage, you know, four, thir 14 to 15, where I've got that yellow thing here. I mean, that thing's getting pummeled. Um, you know, think about an increase of a thousand PSI in, you know, a matter of, you know, a, a couple of, a couple of, uh, seconds, right? No <laughs> time. Like it's a handful of minutes causing that elevated pressure. And that's, that's something that's probably not good, but, you know, I think there's, you know, a lot of, um, a lot more, um, very physics-based analysis that's been going on in the technical community yeah. uh, and published out there, um, right where, you know, people are doing very rigorous technically, um, you know, technical analysis and looking at the different poor elastic responses that are seeing on those FDIs. And it, again, it, it's really something where you have to make the measurements, you have to tie it back into some type of holistic thesis that's validated by other diagnostics. And I mean, I do, do know of a handful of operators that have come up with the best practices saying, if I see an offset pressure response, of you know x delta p over this time period or a certain number of them then they're going to make a modification um potentially on that stage or definitely on that next stage to try to um truncate or or, or minimize that you know impact where they know they're going to probably have some problems um you know sometimes you can have sand that gets pushed back into that parent well bore and it's got right, right? so you got a there's a huge amount of cost and wasted effort right, right? and then obviously you know, the longer term thing is just the damage to those offset wells, right? If you're pummeling them and you're connecting those reservoirs together, then they don't have that natural pressure drive to help them, you know, maintain the same level of production. And that's, you know, I'd say that's still a very, very um, difficult long-term problem where we want to have, you know, multiple stacked pay zones, both the Delaware and the Midland Basin, try to drain as much of that percentage of that, that, that resource as possible. Uh, and it's a very challenging problem. It's a lot more challenging than I, than I was originally envisioned, you know, when we yeah. start to go these very, very ultra tight, you know, in field well programs. Right. And you said something interesting. It's, it's overly physics approached, right? It, it, you need, there's chemistry, there's a lot of chemistry going on and no one's really trying to break that down. That solution that's carrying the propent is reacting with the rock and especially reacting with kerogen. So there's a chemical reaction that's driving physical responses too. There are two things happening with this system. And to me, a frack hit is, is great information if you, can, if you can control the precision and the timing. And, and now you have this connectivity of this. What's the spacing on that? 600 feet or something? What's the spacing on these two wells? I think this is like a thousand feet, man. Uh, Perfect. So a thousand feet and you got a reservoir that the petrophysicist is telling you, you should have recoverable oil of 800,000 barrels coming out of this rock. And you're nowhere near that. What's going on. You got a frack hit. Now you have almost a whole nother horizontal well through this reservoir. Let's talk about the chemistry that you're flushing through this pipeline and you have the ability to start circulating things. I, I see the frack hits and what you're doing, not only for primary recovery increase and to drastically change our response from a thousand barrels a day to five to fucking to more. I truly believe that's going to happen because we're starting to figure this out. People are absolutely starting to figure this out. The chemistry and the complexity of chemistry and physics, it's happening. The other thing is, 
it's not, it can't be that bad of a deal. It's definitely not a waste. If, if anybody's got some trickling along horizontal wells that you know are connected, I'm interested in buying those things because I'm going to pump down one, pump through and see what comes up the other side. And I'm going to start changing the chemistry and start focusing on what could I do to manipulate the recovery in this channel that we've connected. I think it's a, I think it's a positive, but you can't just blow the thing up. Like you talked about going from a thousand, however you said 4,000 increase in PSI or a thousand, at least. Yeah. A thousand PSI in seconds. Woo. You know, let's let's hit it with some precision. Let's be soft on this. Let's really listen to how this fluid's moving. And then, oh, by the way, what's really changing? What gases are coming out the other side? Mass balance the problem. I mean, in some cases, I mean, I would, you know, I don't think it's as prevalent as it was a couple of years ago, but like some of these hits, you know, when you've got uh, a naturally fractured reservoir, you know, that level of pressure can cause the casing to shear in on itself, right? And then you've got like an even more horrific costly problem from from that, that issue yeah and, you know for myself um i don't really have the level of expertise in the, the chemistry side like like you do clearly but you know it's definitely fascinating i i, I that's it's really really interesting and it's you know obviously something that uh i think is, is it obviously is very important you know i think another um you know the only thing i can speak to that is um you know you look at um um, the Powder River Basin, for example, I think that the chemistry and the, those reactions down there are, are fascinating because, you know, I've seen people experimenting where they know they're going to rupture through a lithological barrier, but because of the chemical properties of that formation, they have evidence that it actually heals itself after the, after the stimulation. So if you're, you're trying to contain those reservoirs, you can manage that rupture and account for it. Wow. see from the, like from the chemical, um, you know, looking at the chemical returns, like analyzing that post-factum, you can, you can determine what part of the reservoir you're actually re- recovering from. And you can get that you've still maintained uh, right. isolation within that, within that discretized reservoir because of the chemical properties. So that's, that's another diagnostic that has a huge amount of value. And there's a lot of very, very smart people that are doing phenomenal work there. Fascinating. Fascinating. I can't wait for that development. I'm certainly waiting for that stuff. So we are officially done with the drill down segment. Are you guys good with that? Do you want to dive into one last thing and we'll get into completion? Let's do it. Uh, so me and Skip started a podcast and it was about just sharing our experience in the Permian Basin with other people, these legends and these local superheroes to us that we have as colleagues and friends from the societies we were in and sharing those experiences and, and learning from them. That was the that was it. That was the concept of it. What happened was we started we started really developing new information because it's a collaboration of thoughts and actions that's never been said before. Right. We're in the moment. We're talking about new things, new words world applications with these new ideas and so that that became this incredible network and that's what we have now today at pbe we have this incredible network we get to sit down and talk to people like scott taylor and we are now officially going to the completion section segment section completion at least i got that right with scott taylor let's go all right man so completion this is like the future right you talked about being in this kind of like you're heading in this dip, but you think it's going to be a resurgence for microseismic, that niche in the oil and gas industry. So let's talk about operators across the Permian Basin currently 
focusing on microseismic. If you just said, let's talk about the top 10 operators, are all 10 of them running microseismic studies? Or what's the what what's the the take on that? How active is microseismic in the Permian Basin right now? So um, I think the data point that that I would go to is is which companies are interested in employing best in class diagnostics to optimize what they're doing. And, you know, I, I point to two, two use cases. So back a few years ago, you had the hydraulic fracture test site one that was led by Laredo Petroleum. Um, you know, that group there, I think had uh, 13 or 14 different, um, you know, different operators. And they were trying the best in class tracers, the best in class analysis of, of recovered core and looking at for really for the first time I've ever seen it, publishing results where they're drilling through and recovering core through where you've stimulated those fractures and trying to understand and like really looking at this and going, holy cow, these natural fractures are so complicated. And this sand is the distribution of sand is way, way, way more complicated than, than what we're doing in our fracture models. And so I would argue that in the Midland Basin, that would be, you know, the target customer. Those are all the guys that are going to be interested in, in running a diagnostic measurement to solve a specific engineering problem. And then you go back, um, sort of uh, April of, of 2019, um, you had the hydraulic fracture test site two that was supported by Gas Technology Institute Department of Energy funding. So it was a, uh, a joint uh, Anadarko and uh, Shell asset in Loving County. And they were looking at different um, Wolf Camp completions. And they, again, they have it, the kitchen sink is thrown out. You've got two permanent fibers, one in a horizontal, one in a vertical. You've got um, microseismic run on, on a pad of wells. You've got different landing zones, nine different completion cluster designs, You've, wow. uh, single stages uh, where they only pumped through a single cluster, just fluid so that you can look, you can calibrate the response, to the cross wall strain um, and calibrate that acoustic response to rate. They ran tracers. They ran. Um, uh, what else did we do here? Um, production flowback. So there's, there's production flowback on that permanent fiber in different time steps. So you can look at that dynamic process. Um, the other bit of cool thing is they drilled on the Eastern and the Western side through the fractures again and recovered the core. And, you know, there's going to be some, I think, phenomenal publications coming up here um, in some of these next technical conferences where people are, you know, digging into that and looking again at how bloody complex that, fra that fracture distribution actually is. So, I mean, for our little company and, you know, from my experience, you know, one of the things that's a pitfall is you put the cart before the horse. It's very difficult to be disciplined in your approach. And when you've got something new, you've proven it to yourself as, you know, a small, you know, less than 10 person company. And what do you do? Well, you have to go out and you have to find a group of individuals or a group of operators that are going to be captivated audience. They're interested in solving that problem. And you've got to have, um, a controlled experiment, basically like what they executed there, where they spent, you know, 10 plus million bucks and they've got independent measurements to validate this, this process that I shared with you. So what can we do to validate it? Um, so the guys that we're working with right now have withheld that permanent fiber. So, you know, you've got a direct measurement in that one of those wells where you can see fluid allocation from that fiber. You can see prop, estimate profit allocation. And, you know, in different time steps, you've actually got the production flowback monitoring. So you can see where the reservoir is producing from. The other one, you've got a, a vertical fiber as well. So that's going to be hit uh, at certain periods along the wellbore. So you can 
get a sense of like where that fluid is actually hitting that, that, um, that vertical data well. And so from that, you can see how high up the fluid went and that you know, precisely aligns up as a, as a, a touch point to, to validate some of the stuff I shared with you beforehand. And then the third piece is obviously uh, blindly trying to you know, differentiate what um, you know, the fracture aperture and within that, you know, what part of that is, is component as fluid. Uh, and what part of that is profit? And going back to you know, sort of the first principles, there's a difference in the density of sand versus the density of water. So the thought is that you'd be able to tease that out. And you know, that's, that's really where, where I'm at right now and what we're doing. Um, exciting thing is I think we're coming to a, a hopefully a very successful conclusion of that with, um, with some of those operators. And hopefully we'll be able to share with the community here over the, you know, coming months and, and into the summer, some, some really exciting results where we can actually step up in front of the community and say, man, we've, we've shown it. We've shown it that we've got you know, a 60% agreement or a 70% agreement, or God forbid, even a, you know, a better agreement than that to be able to make these, these really important diagnostic measurements that we discussed today. Wow. Fantastic, man. So that's kind of what you're working on now. And in the future, yeah. you're definitely writing papers. You're contributing this knowledge and information to back yeah. to the community. You know, the hope would be to, you know, work with, um, you know, some of the folks that we're working with right now on, on this and, uh, and come out with a joint publication and, and really, cause we've been working, we work more of as a team. Um, you know, we've done a couple projects with this particular guys um, and it's really fun. You know, we start coming up with our results. We, we have a process where we, you know, withhold all this extraneous information. They, you know, make some suggestions of how we might try to trap some of these learnings and observations. It's this really fun process to be able to, um, I think, reinforce the healthy nature of a collaborative workflow between a service provider and that asset team. It's, it's a, it, you know, it's, a, I think that's another great thing we can share with the community of how important that is, not just try to, you know, build them as much money as you can and get away with the lowest quality product as you may have in the past because you're so busy, but really you know, care about each one of those customers, care about doing a good job and, and adding value to their business unit and being a part of their, while you're getting mm-hmm. you're under a contract with them. And I love that. Uh, so completions and kind of the, 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 the history of it, it started with kind of slick water, then it got into gels and then hybrids. And now we're kind of back to slick water completions. Isn't that kind of how the history of fracking wells has gone as far as the fluid that's carrying the propent? Would you I would agree? say predominantly, yes. We, you know, we've gone to, um, I would say predominantly slick water at a very high rate um, with, you know, these extreme limited entry designs. Um, the only thing that maybe is, is more prevalent um, today is a lower rate simulfrac. So that's where you're using a, a spread and trying to, you know, stimulate more than one well on a pad or, or sort of two pads at the same time. So you, you don't have the same amount of horsepower to get that higher rate. Um, you know, obviously there's, you know, the cost, right? I mean, the, the time is, is significantly truncated with that. And that's bringing in its own, you know, nuances and complexities. Right. So we're doing uh, we're developing a show. We're working on the details. We can't go into the in details with you on this, but there's a fracking technology or a fracking. Yeah. I'll call it a technology that's dra- that could drastically change the game. We're working with these guys to tell this story. It's a patented deal. It's 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 real. And it's using less water, less prop and having better results. It's a different way to use the hammer as like I say, we're just hammering these reservoirs with one big push getting fluid out there. You're watching those things real time. 
Now we have maybe this revolutionary idea for operators to, to change the way they're using the hammer, not so much the chemistry and all that stuff, which is very important and very fascinating in itself. But I think the combination of the two is what's going to revolutionize the Permian Basin and, un and unconventional reservoirs. The, the results of the past will look nothing like the future. I truly believe that. And you're on the front lines of it, man. So I just can't thank you enough for spending the time with um, us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Dude. And I look forward to hanging out with you at uh, Cinco de Mayo. Um, Cinco de Mayo? Oh, yeah. You are tuned in to the PBE podcast where we're taking new information, applying it to new real world applications to make discoveries. We got to stop and take a minute and thank our sponsors, BRT Energy Advisors, Better Reservoir Technologies, Results Without the BS. We've had Alan on our show and I can tell you from experience, he definitely has seen seismic from around the world, including of course, right here in the Permian Basin. If you are in the EMP business and you want to use seismic data to increase the value of your asset, or if you want to drill safer wells at lower costs using seismic, then you got to get a hold of Alan Bertain and work with his team at BRT Energy Advisors. If you check out our podcast from episode 70, you'll see that not only he understands geophysics, business, and people, but he also explains complicated subjects in a clear and simple way. Visit them at www.brtenergy.com forward slash PBE.